Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comic book form. I'm Misty Graves. And I'm Herman Lowe. Join us for a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Welcome back, constant listeners, to the return of a long-overdue, full-length episode of The Long Box of Darkness. This one's very special because it features the introduction of a new mainstay to the show, a permanent co-host, with which I will hopefully plumb the dreadful depths of the darkest long boxes for years to come. Like I said, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, just who is this mystery horror host, you might be asking, and why are you the last to hear of it. Well, perk up your ears and oversized uh, other bat-like protuberances as I regale you with her resume. She's a fine artist, a writer, a musician, a horror nut, obviously, a cat lover, a comic addict, again, obviously, and our new producer, editor, and the creative force behind the newest season of Laud. So join me in a horror hurrah as I welcome my good friend, Misty Graves to the show. Hi there, Misty. How's it hanging? See what I did there? Hanging? <laughs> oh, oh, is that tying into the Wild West story and one of our issues today? That's going to be one of the issues we discuss. <laughs> but seriously, I'm so glad that you agreed to take the chair as the permanent co-host of the Long Box of Darkness. Thanks a lot for that. Thank you, Herman. I'm incredibly honored to be here. I'm very excited to talk about horror comics. Well, you know what's scary is when you get all serious like that. <laughs> <laughs> Misty's renowned for her humor, folks. So, yeah, you better get used to that. <laughs> so, Misty, as I'm wont to do when I have someone on the show, but, you know, since this is our show, you know, slash your show, basically now. Uh, I just want the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So I'm going to ask you some rote questions that I uh, usually ask my guests. Not that you're a guest, remember? I mean, this is basically your show now. (laughs) You're running season two. So I just want to, yeah, I just want to ask you, how did you get into horror? Like, what was your horror origin or horrorgen, which is a term you (laughs) coined off mic? What's your origin, Misty? Okay, so I was born in the 1980s in the upper Midwest in America. Um, I grew up in a house full of books and developed a love of reading. I wasn't much of an outside kid. I think I just really liked to be alone in my room, like... A creepy little kid <laughs> likes to do. Um, I was obsessed with the book Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and those illustrations. I was very attracted to scary looking things. Um, Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark, I think, was 
monumental in turning me into a fear junkie. Like, <laughs> I lived for that show. Um, it was about this group. Have you have you seen the show before? No, I've never seen. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Oh. Always wanted to. It is so good. Although it, watching it as an adult, I don't know if it would... I think some of the episodes still hold up actually as an adult because it was creepy even for a kid's show. Some of the stuff, some of the episodes were very scary, but um, essentially the, the show was a group of friends sitting around a campfire telling each other scary stories, uh, which is just an amazing premise for a show. And it was my favorite show and kind of got me hooked on like, serial horror and <laughs> like fear just like i was like oh ghost stories fear stories like mm. i don't know i was just obsessed with it um and then when i was nine years old the first goosebumps book came out yeah that influenced yeah. a whole generation of of horrorlings mm -hmm. and, and horror kids yeah monster kids yeah, so I was immediately obsessed, and I read, like, every single one as they came out. Wow. Uh, my mom worked, so I did an after-school care program where we walked down to the local library a few times a week, and when I ran out of goosebumps, I started perusing the young adult section and started reading Fear Street and uh, author Christopher Pike, his novels. Oh, yeah. Because they were a little more geared towards the young adult horror. That's right. Then, I don't know if you... Well, 1996, so we're, we're up to 1996 now. <laughs> in my origin... <laughs> We only have 14, 24 more years to cover. <laughs> so, hold on. Uh, <laughs> Keep going. 1986 was a big year for scary movies for me. Um, that was the year the movie The Craft came out. Mm. Have you seen The Craft? Yeah, I remember it fondly. I think I, I might have seen it on a date or something with a goth chick. So it was oh, extra God. special. <laughs> the experience was enhanced. Of That's the perfect, that's like the perfect memory of that movie. Besides my memory of it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Watching it at a sleepover with four of my friends and then we all immediately became witches. We were just automatically witches and had powers and did Ouija board stuff and creepy stuff. Um, and then, uh, so then, like, so I was reading this Christopher Pike novel. I was, I was reading Fear Street. I was in the young adult horror. Um, then I started getting into Stephen King and his short story collections. Oh, yeah, they're the best. Yes, yes. Like Skeleton Crew. Oh, loved it. My favorite is Skeleton Night Shift, crew. but Skeleton Crew is a very close second. Yes, Night Shift is so good. Mm. Um, those two books were really important to me. I, I remember reading them during the summer and like camping trips. We'd go on oh, camping trips ugh. and I'd just sit and like read scary stories. Damn. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Um, so I was a witch and I was obsessed with Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's it in a nutshell, really. <laughs> it was yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. Uh, it was the teenage years in horror were fun. Um, it's a pretty horrific time, you know. Yeah, for for anybody growing up, you know, that's that's when things start happening to your body, and and that's body horror right there, and. You know, oh gosh, yeah. You're looking for Definitely. your own identity, yeah, that's another problem. So <laughs> the horror of being rejected by your peers, like in oh, Carrie. Damn. Oof. But nobody mm-hmm. threw you threw tampons at you, did they? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> damn. Oh no. Um, but we did play we did play light as a feather, stiff as a board, you know? Uh, oh, I know it. Oh, scary. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, daring each other to do Bloody Mary in the bathroom was a thing. Wow. So, Say, looking in the bathroom mirror and saying Candyman. <laughs> yep. Same exact concept. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, so there's, there's like horror in real life. I love those little, hor- those little horror games like Say Bloody Mary three times. I wonder if there's any new ones of those that have come out. You know, we Reset. might have to to kidnap uh, a few teenagers and like, uh, you know, uh, plumb their their minds for that information because I haven't, I don't know you any know new is. games. I bet there is. That's that's what all that Slenderman business was about. Oh yeah, true. Oof. Okay, mm-hmm. this this will require like... a Google search <laughs> later mm-hmm. on. Whole other episode. That's like maybe a whole other podcast actually. Just. All of that, like, creepypasta mm. kind of internet, in, like, spooky internet stuff. Yeah. What are, they're, like, dares. They're spooky internet dares. I don't That's yeah. a whole other thing. Okay. So we're to college now. College. <laughs> college years in my origin. Um, I, I went to art school for a little while to study illustration. Yeah. And some of my friends were comic book artists, so now I'm getting into, like, how I started my introduction to comic at comic art and comic books as a expression of art. Some of my friends were comic book artists, but I had, like, a really stuck-up attitude towards the art form of comic books because I was like, oh, I'm an illustrator, right? I have my own unique style and all the comic book artists, they all draw the same. Mm. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, well, you just have to read more to, you know, to appreciate the diversity. But in the very beginning, that's definitely the perception you have, definitely. Yeah, that's how I thought of it. I was, uh, I hadn't been exposed to a whole lot of it. Um, and so it from the outside, it was it was all just um, like beat em up, shoot em up superhero and the art wasn't incredibly interesting so I'm like I don't know about this I'm gonna go do like goth stuff with my punk friends and (laughs) be incredibly um like pretentious yeah (laughs) but cool yet pretentious (laughs) pretentious yeah like it was it was it was very pretentious and Mm. I think that having that attitude you know probably I missed out having that attitude where I was like mm, this is low brow or you know yeah. <laughs> the, 
term is. So, so I used to have a really kind of biased attitude towards comic book art. But then a friend of mine lent me read her roller derby zine, which is a feminist punk zine mm. created by Lisa Carver during the Riot Girl movement in the 90s in the U.S. Right. Um, and that had a handful of stories by comic artist Dame Darcy in it. And Dame Darcy's art was just like this wonderful gothic fantasy with werewolves and talking crabs and like two two headed people and um yeah that's they right were yeah they were wonderful and, and creepy and also like feminist and i was like hey maybe comics aren't just all like guys hitting punching each other and like no there's the, the alternative comic scene and once you get away from the big two right from marvel and dc you get the alternative comics and i think you know, then you start to really appreciate what the medium can do because there's no constraints, right, Misty? And Dame Darcy definitely you know, has no constraints at all on what she deals yeah. with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so once once I stopped being pretentious, and I, I, the world of comics is open to me and um, we're to my adulthood now uh, and my origin story of how I was introduced to horror comics. Right. That's what so. I want to hear. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so all of that, you know, that's just like how I became a big fan of horror, addicted to fear. Mm. You know, I don't know if it's an addiction to fear. It's definitely something. I just feel comfortable around it. It's weird. That is weird. Some, some psychological studies still need to be done to completely explain why. <laughs> yeah, we like that stuff. But um... honestly, it's like light reading compared to just reading Twitter. You know, this mm. feels it's like the sound of music compared to what's going on in the actual news. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, horror is cathartic. You know, it sort of allows you to deal with with terrible and you know kafkaesque um events in uh you know in a way that does not feel as if there are any consequences so you know that's yeah. why i think we love horror but that's just my take but yeah the news definitely you know a, a whole different kind of horror that i don't want i don't want any part of right <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, well, I have enjoyed escaping into the safety of the House of Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's there the for, I'm sure. <laughs> wonderful, comforting arms of a sentient house that produces mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, that that comic, you know, had its its um, you know, um, what, what would you call it? Its most popular era during you know the Cold War when people were worried about some serious issues. Are we going to die in a nuclear holocaust? Blah blah blah. So, you know, um, yeah. it probably uh, served the same kind of uh, purpose that it does for us now. You know, Misty, which is like just getting rid of reality for a short while and reading a thirty-two or twenty-four page comic and just escaping. Yeah, yeah it's so. it. It's a healthy outlet, and if you would like to read comics, uh, go on longboxofdarkness.com and follow those links to read these comics we're talking about today. Definitely, and I'll be posting some images for sure.
you know so uh, you know the listeners who don't have these obscure issues that we're gonna you know <laughs> right. you know uh, talk about they'll definitely be able to find some some links uh, or some ways to acquire them but so misty basically you only got into comics when you were in college or or when you were already um uh, out of college when you started working and stuff is that is that right yeah wow yeah so yeah. that's that explains why the, your first introduction to comics wasn't all that positive because that that's normally what happens if if people who've never read comics much as a child suddenly are inundated by the, these superhero universes which is 90% of the comics medium in any way mm -hmm. um, yeah. so you know i don't blame you for thinking whoa <laughs> what the hell <laughs> like this is not for me. This is like, for, I'm not the audience for this. You know, this is like for another, for people who enjoyed superhero stuff. You know, and I'm not, not that I don't enjoy superhero stuff. I respect it, you know. But yeah. I'm You're... a horror story kind of, Gal. kind of, <laughs> kind of person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, no, no, it's true. I mean, we don't want to alienate half of our listeners who are rabid superhero fans and horror fans. That's why they're listening. <laughs> so uh, Misty's no. been contractually obliged to say that, folks. <laughs> no. no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Much respect to the wonderful worlds and that exist in the writers of, of those stories, you know, and exist in the minds of the writers of those mm, stories. Yeah. They, they take them to wonderful places, so it is, you know. Yeah, they're relevant. I, I was like, yeah. was it for me? But this horror stuff I can get on board with, so. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I'm the same. I've got my favorite genres, and horror is my favorite genre. So that's it. That's how, what, I, what I'm reading. I do love superheroes, but, you know, hey, I'm doing a horror comic podcast. So what does that say? <laughs> you know? And you're doing yeah. it with me, Misty. So we're in the same yeah. boat. You know, it's good to have a niche, as mm -hmm. they say. It's good to have a niche. Uh, and this course. is our niche. If you want to specialize, if you want to really get professional about it, you need to, you know, uh, be good at one specific thing. You can't be mm -hmm. this, you know, um, what, do you, what do they call it? This jack of all trades all the time when it comes to, to right. horror or to comics. <laughs> right. Master of none. Yeah, exactly. There mm -hmm. you go. <laughs> in your case mistress of none oh double, double meaning or or you might be someone's mistress i don't know <laughs> the mistress of the dark <laughs> mistress of the night that i feel like i think somebody important already has that title i wouldn't ever uh -huh. want to run a nice uh, segue sorry elvira will she protects her territory. She protects what's hers. You, you know. better not step in her, you know, personal space with these kind of things, Misty. You'll, you'll I would, lose. She's got strong boundaries. You know, I'm not coming for her name. I would never, I would never come for the name Mistress of the Dark. Oh no, the the hostess with the mostest. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite, you know, moniker of hers. Listeners, why are we talking about Elvira here? Because Misty, you have selected. You know, two comics from uh, Elvira's House of Mystery from DC, and that's... Um, I didn't finish telling you my origin story. Oh, really? This this plays into <laughs> it? Okay, cool. I mean, go 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 mad. <laughs> I still want to hear more. The very end part of it, which ties it all back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, basically, I discovered horror comics five years ago when I stopped into a comic book shop and I asked the comic book shop owner if they had any roller derby scenes, 
like uh, my friend had given me to read in college. I said, oh, do you have this obscure like riot girl scene from the 90s? And of course he was like, no, I don't have that. <laughs> I definitely don't have that. What are you talking about? But then I remembered that X-Files had a comic book series. And I was like, I want some X-Files comics because there aren't enough episodes of that show. So I need to go and read comic books now with new episodes in them. So asked about X-Files comics, but was shown to where the X-Files comics were. I was digging through the X-Files comics when I finished these reprints of uh, the Tales from the Crypt Keep comics from the 90s. Those those Tales from the Crypt reprints in yeah, there. Yeah, the EC Horror reprints that they did in the yes. 90s. Oh, beautiful. So that's how I came across Tales from the Crypt comic books. And I bought them and I brought them home and I was like, this reminds me of the stuff that I loved as a kid. Like, it brought back all of that joy of reading new goosebumps novels and watching are you afraid of the dark and like the just kind of love of a short spooky story yeah <laughs> some supernatural oh, yeah. justice involved you know i like a little bit of that so it kind of just brought it all around for me and i was like this is i'm so happy that i discovered not discovered it but i'm like so happy that i walked into that comic book shop that day and Got some Exiles comic and the Tales from the Crypt comic, and became, it was just kind of a. It's yeah. serendipity, maybe. I mean, you became an instant fan then, so. Yeah. Um, great for you, great for me, because now I've got a podcast host. <laughs> so. Yeah. 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 It just sort of all came together. I was like, this is incredibly my shit. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, basically. <laughs> We've mentioned this off mic when we spoke, but you're a fan of the horror anthology. And for yes. me, that is the best way that horror works. On TV, even, I would go as, as far as to say, yeah, that, that too. Although you could argue that a horror movie is one whole, you know, horror short, really, because it has a definite ending. That's what I like about horror. But with, with comic books, it's especially relevant because uh, an anthology comic has a beginning, a middle and an end. And you know that it's just going to end with some terrifying twist, some O. Henry ending that you don't expect and you want to see it coming, but you can't. And um, that's what I like. It's like little, you know, uh, bits of, of dynamite detonating in your mind when you when you have three or four stories in, you know, uh, squeezed into a, one comic book like that. And you're a fan of that, too. And that's yeah. the best way to get into horror is through those old classics, which... For, well, in my mind, features the best example of that kind of anthology storytelling yeah. format. So. so good. And so uh, horrifying, too. Just fantastically gory illustrations. Yeah. Uh, Pre-comic book code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, such good stuff. Yeah. We'll have to do a Tales from the Crypt in an, in an episode definitely oh we're definitely yeah. going to do that that's that's one of the things i've had on my future you know list of topics for so long but i've never gotten to it i've done a few short intro episodes interlude episodes you know uh, i think one or two about you know stories from ec but i've never gone in depth we do need to put that down as one of the, the topics we have to discuss yeah we have to tales from the crypt is classic 
Classic yeah. horror comic. We wouldn't be able to keep our horror cred if we don't talk about that down the line. <laughs> Correct. Definitely. But so, <laughs> so at was it at that same self same comic book shop that you you know um, kept you know like you became a regular buyer um, yeah. of horror comics and you went back and got and filled up a a bit of a collection for yourself or what? Yes. Um, since I brought those those comics home with me and enjoyed them so much, I kept going back every weekend, every other weekend, and becoming more and more familiar with the uh, titles that. Uh, were related to Tales from the Crypt. Um, I learned there's this whole era in the 70s and 80s of, of horror anthology comics that they were just huge for especially 73 and 74. It seems like those were just peak years for horror comics. Or maybe those are just all the ones that I'm finding now, but like those seemed like big years. So I, I just kind of paid attention to the things that really resonated for me and looked for similar titles. Hmm. Um, no, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think you're right about those two years as well, because, um, you know, that's when horror had a resurgence, you know, after the whole, you know, Frederick Wortham debacle of the 1950s and, you know, the comic book code being, you know, um, installed to oversee comics. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, they started challenging that comic book code in the early 1970s, you know, and then, you know, uh, they got into the full swing of horror again, but still a little bit restricted. You know what I mean, um, Misty? There were some uh, things they still couldn't do, like gory horror. They couldn't get into that as much as the EC Comics did to, uh, 15 years prior to that. But still, you know, you had this feeling that people wanted. They, they, they really needed some horror comics in their lives. And Marvel and DC, <laughs> they filled that need. <laughs> and, it, and it worked, yeah. you know. So I'd say 72 and 73 had some great House of Mystery, Secrets of the Sinister House, House of Secrets kind of stories over at DC. And then you had the whole monster magazine craze at Marvel, you know, where they published Monsters Unleashed and Dracula Lives and Tomb of Dracula started in, in that time, mm -hmm. um, which is a regular mm -hmm. comic series. So so many good things flowed out of that um, horror comeback, if you want to, uh, on the pages of comics, that yeah. you're right, there was a, a lot of you know, gems from that era. And, you know, yeah. we're going to talk about them <laughs> down the line. We're yeah. going to talk about them. It almost seemed like Marvel and DC were competing with each other to be the best at horror anthologies. Mm. Yeah. Well, they were always competing on all fronts, but definitely in terms of horror at that time, because that was the, the big thing, you know, with movies like The Exorcist at that point in time being released. And a few years uh, previously, you had Rosemary's Baby hitting it big. Uh, Ooh, so yeah. and and we just came off of the ha the the golden era of Hammer movies, right? So over the British Hammer films, and yeah. so people were craving that kind of stuff. And um, of course, it was a new market. DC and Marvel were both scrambling to get on top of that. I'd say Marvel won out, you know, simply because they started publishing these magazines, which was not constrained by the comic book code because it's a magazine. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I'd say DC because they were still publishing horror comics per se, which was you know, which fell under the code, they had to be more creative with their horror. So mm -hmm. they had to put in more irony and, and they had to rely more on, you know, letting the the reader um, fill in the, the blanks or the gaps in the story in their minds. And that caused for a different kind of horror. So I, I'm kind of leaning to, more towards DC during that era, yeah. you know, because they stuck yeah. to the anthology format, whereas Marvel had very few anthology comics. Yeah. Are yeah. you the same? 
your DC mark for that early horror era? <laughs> started out really liking Marvel uh, because every anthology horror from Marvel was just top-notch, high-quality material. Like, the art was pristine, the covers were fantastic, the stories were great. Uh, whereas, and it was a little bit more scary to me. I felt like they were almost a tiny, tiny bit edgier, maybe. Mm. Whereas DC seemed, the stories seemed a little bit more family-friendly. Uh, some of them are barely spooky, <laughs> you know, uh, but also like, I like love that too, though, because I, I love a, I love a campy story. I love a, just a light spook, a light spook, <laughs> a light spook. <laughs> That's a new term. We'll have to coin that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's kind of like you were saying, they had to. Be more way. creative with yeah. their stories. That's right. I mean, this, you know, the two comics you pick, because listeners, um, this sounds very disingenuous, actually, because Missy and I, we've known each other for a while now. So I know a lot about her horror comic origin already. But for the sake of trying to be a good uh, interviewer, I'm trying to sound as if I don't know anything. But I've learned some new things from you here, Misty, about your horror origin, horrorgen. Um, so, you know, it's been enlightening. But, you know, since we're, we're going to get into a more regular show-related format soon, I, I do have to come back to those two Elvira issues that you initially picked to discuss for the show. Um, did you recently pick them up, or, or have you had them for a while? And um, I know you've always been an Elvira fan from way back when, but when did you happen upon these comics? Well, I found one of the issues at an... At antique mall about 30 minutes away from my house oh. uh, i just picked it up it was then part of a display there was a bunch of them i got real excited when i saw it was house of mystery and elvira together um and just bought probably four or five issues from the antique mall mm. and then took a vacation to Florida last summer and visited a, and I wish I could remember the name of the comic book shop, but I visited a nice little comic book shop there and that's where I found the other issue. Oh, awesome. And I'm not sure which one I found where, but <laughs> yeah, it's hard to remember specifically. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you picked them because, you know, I only had one of them as a kid. I had issue number five. It featured this great cover where Elvira's on a, sort of a, a tree swing uh, sitting in front of the House of Mystery. and um, But I can't really remember much of the story itself. Uh, I just remember there was this giant beaver attacking someone and, uh, <laughs> and there was a dragon. <laughs> I can't remember the rest. But, you know, um, I've yet to reread that comic because after you and I talked about this series, which was sometime last year, I decided to, to hunt it down and I found it on eBay, the entire run of 11 issues. But I didn't get the special, which they which they printed, but I got the the proper run of, of issue 1 to 11. And then, you know, I haven't reread all of them, but I reread these issues that you picked, issue 3 and 10, at least three or four times since we discussed them, and they're so good. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, we're going to get into that, listeners. I just want to um, briefly mention, before we talk about Alvira, who's a force unto herself in, in, in the horror field, I just want to mention to the listeners who don't know, that The House of Mystery ended. Uh, the long-running horror series, The House of Mystery, ended in 
I think August or October of 1983, right, Misty? So um, they canceled it because the horror comic boom was over. Um, mm -hmm. Sales weren't what they used to be. And it was the last issue ending with Kane, the caretaker of the House of Mystery and the de facto horror host of that series, leaving, packing his bags and leaving the House of Mystery. So this Elvira series, though, they sort of um, revitalized the House of Mystery and, and made Elvira the host in 1986, three years later, because basically DC wanted to capitalize on the popularity of Elvira, not because they were thinking that horror was making a comeback, although it was in the movie business and in maybe, um, you know, a couple of TV shows here and there. But in comics, horror was basically done for, except for the, the independent publishers like, you know, um, you know, uh, Dark Horse, which was starting at that time and so forth. And it, this was still pre-Vertigo, you know, before DC hit it big with the Vertigo line. So, you know, they weren't doing this to, to bring horror back. They were basically trying to make money off of Elvira as a brand. And, you know, Elvira had her movie macabre, um, you know, show that she was hosting as, you know, introducing horror films from, from way back when. And she was had some movies coming out. Well, one movie in particular, which would come out, I think, in 1988. So she was a big deal, a household name. You know, every Halloween was filled with Elvira stuff. And DC thought, okay, we'd get her on board as a horror host. And um, that's how it started, you know, so they brought back the House of Mystery just to have Elvira as a host. And um, I, th I think it worked. Like single-handedly brought back House of Mystery. That is how powerful she is <laughs> as a horror, as a mistress of the night, as a horror host. She brought back House of Mystery. They brought it back just for her. Like, exactly. That's amazing. <laughs> that's true. I mean, uh, they could have brought back any old horror title, but House of Mystery being, I, I'd say, their top, uh, or their most, uh, not always their top seller, but their most famous horror comic from the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, it's been running since 1951, House of Mystery proper, but, you know, um, if you think about the DC era, you know, with Joe Orlando uh, at the helm as a writer and editor and often doing art on it that that started in 1968 i think so it ran from 1968 to 1983 it it was basically the series that people associated with horror when they talk about dc horror comics i'd say so you know they picked the best title they had and they gave it to elvira like you said that that's the main reason they that's how highly esteemed she was at that time and uh, you, yeah they crossed a marketing opportunity <laughs> yeah and mm -hmm. and you see it in the pages of these comics. There's, I mean, the house ads alone in these comics are join the Elvira fan club. You know, watch Elvira's <laughs> movie macabre. Would you like a life-size cutout for your Halloween party of Elvira? <laughs> well, you know, she's the best-selling Halloween costume of all time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah, so there's a reason Marketability for through the roof here, yeah. Amazing. She's, because she's amazing, yeah. It's a to me to see it also when I when I came across these issues I was excited because they were set in such a different time period than all of the other house of mysteries they are set in the 80s you know in the 86 and, and 86 <laughs> yeah 86 and 86 both of these yeah because it just ran from I think from January 1986 to January 1987 you're right so these two issues that we'll be talking about was in 1986 now this is funny um uh, Hannah, because at this point in time, the, the, the storyline, the Crisis of Infinite Earths was happening. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know about this, but this was basically DC trying to uh, revamp their entire, you know, universe. And the House of Mystery was firmly set in the DC universe. It wasn't separated from the superhero universe. There were numerous appearances in superhero comics of the House of Mystery prior to this story. So Elvira sort of happened to, you know, um, become the host um, during this time. So that's one notable uh, thing we should mention. Some readers have even speculated that that's why Elvira could sort of jump from one universe, which is the TV, you know, real life, <laughs> you know, universe into our, well, let's call it Earth Prime, from Earth Prime into, you know, the Earth One universe of the House of Mystery yeah. because of this, the fluctuation in dimensions, you know, caused by oh, the crisis. She's dimensional. It, she's incredibly interdimensional. Oh, she's you know, cross-dimensional. You have to be to survive in show business. <laughs> yes, true. And that's how she has survived. Wow, she mm -hmm. still kept her figure after all this time. She's <laughs> beautiful. So, yeah, you're right. And, um, yeah, she's definitely got cross-cultural appeal, uh, even though she's she's stemming from the horror genre. But, you know, she's got comedy going for her. You know, she's uh, a fashion icon. She's, you know, a sex symbol, all of that. And then she's very intelligent and witty. She's a writer, producer. She's even been in a band. I mean, she's just amazing. Yeah. I have some Elvira facts, if you want to hear some Elvira facts. I want facts. to, because, okay, listeners, let me just introduce this part of the show a little bit. Misty is a huge Elvira fan, and um, uh, when I when we first decided to, obviously, host the show together, Misty, and you, you're taking over the reins of season two, um, you, you mentioned that you want to talk Elvira first, so I figured kind of you... You have a lot of Elvira knowledge, and I, I don't have as much as you, so I'm going to let you go and just... Info dump. <laughs> we okay. want to know about her. Yeah. I, I just want to say a little bit about Elvira just to like set the scene, you know, describe her as a character in case our listeners do not aren't familiar with Elvira as a character. Um, she is a late night B-movie horror hostess played by Cassandra Peterson. She made her debut on 1981. In 1981, <laughs> she made her debut <laughs> in 1981 on KHJ TV. Um, her character, her personality, how would you describe her personality? Well, uh, she at first she seems shallow and flaky, but actually she's got a, a very humorous bent and very uh, snarky, very like a valley girl type persona. You know, she's like trashy, but in, a, in an intellectual way, if I can put it like that. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. She's like a her character is supposed to be a combination of eighties American Valley girl with uh like a crypt keeper. Yeah, bent. <laughs> but also like a punk rocker. Yeah. And uh, like maybe a sexy vampire. The 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 lady who played Vampira from the nineteen fifties, um horror host show kind of wanted to sue her because she saw Elvira as sort of um, subsuming her uh, look and personality, which which wasn't yeah. the case at all. Yeah, there was a whole debacle over uh, their sign-off lines. One was, oh, goodness, what is it? Unpleasant uh, dreams? Or... Unpleasant dreams. Yeah. And then... The other one was like unpleasant screams. Yeah, something. yeah, pleasant screams. Yeah, 
too and, similar, yeah. But but based on a, that uh, off of that alone, I'd say there's no relation. I mean, other than they dress in black, because Elvira is way funnier, and Vampira is quite boring to me. I think. I mean, from the clips I've seen on YouTube. Yeah, and she's I, a little, I yeah, a little stiff. You know, mm. I think being a was she 1950s? Was she a 50s era? Yeah, character. I'd say. I know that she her character off of an Adams family character. Yeah, Morticia Adams or or Lily Munster even might be a better approximation of her character. But um, you know, none of them complained. <laughs> or Charles That's Adams just, didn't complain. How art works, you know, it's it's a lot of it is you're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and Elvira's case she was inspired by characters like Vampira, I'm sure, inspired by her, but also inspired by uh, the first the first inundation of Elvira when when she was asked to be this character, she was in she had in her mind of doing something like Sharon Tate's character in the Fearless Vampire Hunters, that movie from the late sixties where yeah, Sharon Roman Polanski's film. Well, Sharon yeah, Tate she... was his wife, wasn't she? And murdered by the Manson family. So, yeah, scary. That's probably yeah. why they didn't okay it, right? Or, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, it's, yeah, maybe it's just like a, a little too dark, you yeah. know, a little too real. Uh, but there, she has this beautiful red hair mm, in, the, in, in, real in life, that yeah. movie. Her character is gorgeous. And I could definitely see that being a horror host, but... It was the 80s. They were like, no, be a valley girl, be a punk rocker, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. He, like, has the history of uh, being a punk rocker and, like, singing for an Italian rock band. Whoa. And, <laughs> I know, right? She's like, awesome. Just, amazing. Just, yes, very amazing. Yes. Inspiring. She's an inspiring woman. Yeah. Listeners, you could do worse than you know, having Elvira as a role model. I'd say all young you know girls listening to this podcast if there are any which yeah. i doubt but they'll have to you know look up elvira and become her acolytes yes and one i would one last thing i would also like to add about elvira is that she is a working class hero she in some of her comments she lives in a trailer home or maybe that's just her makeup trailer but she's <laughs> no I'm pretty sure she lives in a trailer home in a couple of her comics. Um, but also she stands up for herself when people with power over her try to keep her down. She stands up for herself, which I think is one of her most, her best qualities is she doesn't take crap from anyone. She stands up for herself. It's really her best quality in my, in my opinion. No, good point. Good point. Most of her, you know, films actually contain scenes where she's up against big business right and then trying to beat the system mm -hmm. of, of having to kowtow to the the you know producers or business executives who's only in it for a buck now Elvira is also in it for a buck I mean she's always hard up for cash but she's not going <laughs> to compromise her principles exactly she it. has integrity and and in a lot of her entertainment a lot of her in her comics and her movies she's approached by like skeezy people who are, they treat her like a sex object or they mm. try to take advantage of her and she just doesn't take it 
Yeah, and in the end, it's often them that are being taken advantage of by Elvira, who's using her mm -hmm. attributes, not just her looks, but also her, her trademark intellect to sort of get the better of them. And that's what I like about her. She's always yeah. able to come out on top of a situation where you'd first think, oh, no, they're going to exploit, exploit her. It doesn't work like that. Not with Elvira. I think it's fine to, like, honestly, when I say treat her like a sex object, like, Elvira is, that's, she is a icon of sexuality, you know, and female sexuality, and, like, treating her like a sex object is what you're supposed to do. That's totally normal. Like, yeah, just... Not wrong. I don't want to shame anybody for being like, oh, I'm not supposed to be horny when I look at Elvira. Like, do be horny. She, that's what it's for. Like, please be and So, like... um. Yeah, but she's but not just uh, that, Misty. She's not... It's when, <laughs> it's when people cross her boundaries. Like I was saying, she has strong boundaries. Like, there's this scene in one of her movies where a real estate agent tries to grab her and he, like, grabs her physically with his hands. You know, and she's just, like, not having it at all. And I don't remember what happens, but I think she, like, uh, he ends up running out of the house terrified. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she doesn't stand for that. Um, definitely not. You know, like, ogle all you want, but don't, do not grab her. Don't touch her. She will, you will not get your hand back. She'll have her pet octopus bite your hand. <laughs> you know? Exactly right. Her pet baby yeah. Cthulhu. Oh, no, she's lovely. Yeah, I mean, I've, I was an instant fan. Um, maybe in the beginning, you know, when I saw her as a teenager, it was because of the, the titillation. But um, later on, I realized it's not just that. I love her more for her humor. She's always got these quips and puns. And, and that's what I love about horror hosts in general. They have, you know, way back when it goes back to the times of the Crypt Keeper as the horror host of the EC Comics and then the 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 Crypt Keeper that was markedly different when it came to the Tales of the Crypt series from the 1980s. All of them have this predilection towards humor and horror. Now, nobody mm -hmm. does that better than Elvira. And that's why I kept coming back to her and why I, I kept remembering her is because of her, her catchphrases. And, um, you know, she's legendary when it comes to uh, introducing a movie and saying something funny about it. Horniness and humor. Like, she's... <laughs> She's just like, she has like kind of a self-deprecating sense of humor where she kind of, she jokes about herself in a way that makes her really likable. Mm, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, she's got so many endearing qualities that, you know, are both for uh, appealing to male and female, I think. So, um, or to, you know, people who aren't expressly male or female, you know, who don't, <laughs> um, you know, associate with either one. And I think that that's what makes her great. Um, she, she's got, like we said before, cross, uh, cross cultural appeal, but also, you know, cross gender appeal to everybody really. So I, I just, um, I think she's luminous, <laughs> even though she's so dark, <laughs> but, um, yeah, she's, she's, she's a bright light. She's like the Dolly Parton of horror. <laughs> oh, <laughs> brilliant. I Whoa, think that's a good description. Couple. A horror angel, yes. I'd love to meet her someday, but I don't know if that's ever <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> I just hope she, she stays safe during this epidemic because we need her. But nothing can, can kill her, I'm sure. But, you know, we really need her. She's a cultural icon that just needs to live forever or something. <laughs> yeah, well, she's 
she's she's alive and kicking. Last I saw, she was posting on Twitter quite often. And if you are listening to this and you're on Twitter, follow Elvira on Twitter. She has been giving us some life during all of this. The other day, I saw a post with her. Uh, she had put masks over her boobs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, you don't want those those two prizes you know. to get get COVID. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it's good. Oh, sh I, I love. Uh, yeah, I saw that one on Facebook. I'm I'm following her Facebook pages and stuff like that. Um, on Twitter, for some reason, she doesn't show up on my feed, even though I follow her. I should probably tweak some settings there. But oh man, I I don't know what the world of horror would be without her because she definitely injects some originality, even though she's a, a horror host with this typical you know dark gothic witch vampire look going she's so not that she's standout a standout of the horror genre right misty so i'm so glad she made it into comics and she still has a comic book series now running again i mean she had one her first one was this one we're going to be talking about from dc and then she had one i think briefly in the 1990s 1993 from an independent publisher and then now you know she has another series running i think uh, i haven't read it but it might be if i'm not mistaken through let me see oh if i can find this somewhere it's pretty recent yeah i mean very recent I think um, it was like it was pretty recent i read a couple of those issues. oh you've read it are they good i, yeah. I want to pick it up they're lovely they kind of they like modernized uh elvira oh modernized it a little bit oh it's from dynamite dynamite publishing yeah oh it's from dynamite yeah i just looked it up so yeah she's back in comics and um you know i don't i i know there's a uh is it an autobiography or is it a biography that's coming out soon misty um i don't know uh you if you know something about that but i think you mentioned it to me before uh, you know a couple of weeks ago i'm not sure where i heard that but there's definitely some elvira coming up in the future yeah uh she's working on that right now it last i saw was slated to come out october of this last year oh nice <laughs> this year maybe oh, this, this year, year. yeah this it year. might be postponed because of everything that's happening in the world but oh. <laughs> biographies go you don't want to ever finish them <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you want to read them in perpetuity yeah so she might have to get a sequel out to the biography hopefully <laughs> i'd read that yeah. Just keep writing it, keep on going, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, all, all the better for us as fans of her. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Misty, we're going to be talking about in our first um, comic book segment. This has been our introductory segment, listeners. It's It's been long because this is the first time Misty is uh, joining us as the co-host. So we wanted to know a lot about her. And um, I'm so glad, you know, we got to all of this info, Misty, because even I didn't even know about that. And we've been friends for, for a while now. So I learned some new things here. <laughs> it shows Excellent. you what happens when you force someone to, to write, you know, a mini biography for a show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, plumbing the depths of your subconscious here. And then, you know, we're going to be talking about issue three and four and ten of Elvira's House of Mystery from DC from 1986 and 1987, that series that ran. And um, I'm going to quickly, briefly um, talk about our first segment, which is It Came From the Long Box. Okay. Um, and then uh, we're going to do it this way, listeners. I'm going to 
talk about the first comic in terms of a, a rendering a synopsis. And But we won't always be doing it like this. Normally we'll be discussing one comic book or one uh, collection or one trade paperback per episode. Um, you know, but this, this, this time... This is two issues. Yeah. And um, even though they're short, so much happened. There's so much to talk about. So <laughs> this is going to be There's a long episode. Within stories in these issues. Stories within stories. You're right. It's metatextual. It's, uh, you know... Uh, literary even in some cases <laughs> like, uh, delusions of grandeur on the parts of the writers I don't know there's lots of good stuff and great they art do hurt themselves into the stories I think a <laughs> they little do. bit Com the creators are in the story there's a bit of them in completely there, yeah. invested I think they were trying to impress Elvira here because she was obviously reading these comics and they're like oh we're writing for a celebrity oh we gotta do her justice <laughs> Let's not screw this up, boys. So Who wouldn't want to impress her? I mean, you only get one shot, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, and unfortunately, all of these writers are males, you know, to the best of my knowledge, red-blooded males who, who, who love the ladies. So mm -hmm. they were probably putting in some extra oomph into their writing, saying, oh, God, I hope we meet her at a con, at a Comic-Con. Say, I'm the writer of your mag, Elvira. <laughs> but that's sad in itself, Misty. I think it could have done with a bit of a, a ladies treatment although there weren't a lot of ladies at DC writing comics at this time there were a lot of editors you know um, <laughs> Jeanette Kahn was oh, the publisher an appointment for that in a couple weeks oh yeah <laughs> definitely um yeah oh man this this I, see, I know what you mean though um I was I always get excited at the um prospect of there being characters in a story that are women or, or a story that centers around a female character that that excites me is definitely because it's kind of rare in the horror anthology uh in the eras that i like in like the 40s 50s 70s 80s it is rare i mean <laughs> yeah those four decades it's like kind of rare to come yeah. across a story that stars you know centers on a woman but at the same time, though, a lot of these stories are about villainous characters who often meet a pretty horrible demise. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> I agree. So there is that that, you know, kind of justification for, you know, nothing's happening to this beautiful horror host lady who's but, you know, at least her stories are no holds barred horror fests of fun, you know, so. <laughs> I agree. I mean, there were uh, female characters around in the horror genre. I mean, you had Madame Xanadu, um, you know, um, running at the same time or just before, you know, um, House of Mystery. But they weren't as standout, I would say, as the the um, persona of Elvira. But, you know, there were some females starting to make a splash in horror, I'd say. And, of course, like in the 70s, Anna, like you mentioned, the, the horror titles like Secrets of the Sinister House and The Witching Hour... They and and Dora into Nightmare and stuff like that. They often featured characters like Eve, you know, the 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 actual biblical Eve as a horror hostess. Uh, but mm -hmm. they were very one dimensional, and they also had you know uh, these witches, the three witches. The who, three witches, yeah. yeah. Show up at the yeah. They show up at the very end of of this series. In fact, in issue eleven, um, you know, it's like this big horror host family reunion in the House of Mystery, where Cain, Abel, you know. The three witches, everybody's in the House of Mystery, just partying it up with along with Elvira. So, you know... Uh, that the, party. <laughs> oh, it's it's brilliant. It'd be so great. Oh. I want to go to that party. And there's a bit of a twist at the end <laughs> where, 
Well, well, we won't spoil it yet. We might talk about that in the future on another episode. But, you know, uh, what I like about that, Misty, is the fact that, you know, Elvira's the first three-dimensional kind of female horror host in comics, for me at least, whereas the old the Three Witches and Eve, they were sort of one-dimensional. They weren't very personality-driven, I'd say. They were fairly rote kind of horror host characters. So she's the ideal horror host for a comic, and I'm sad that the, the, the series didn't last more than 11 issues. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they should bring it back for 2020. Well, if you're listening to DC. I mean, Dynamite want... has the license now, so I doubt they'll be able to you know, steal oh, it yeah. away. <laughs> but um, Actually, read Elvira's 2018 comic. It's great. Just go read that. It just came out. It's, I mean, that's two years ago, but that's still relatively new. <laughs> well, I'm going to take your advice and read it because I haven't done that, and I feel like a heel it's for not crazy. doing that. <laughs> In the first, I know in the first issue, she meets Mary Shelley. Holy God. Cool. That's awesome. That's well, yeah. Mary Shelley's my favorite. I mean, Frankenstein is my yeah. second favorite novel of all time. We'll, we'll talk about my favorite novel later in the show, listeners, in a new segment. But I love Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And Mary Shelley herself is such an icon of, you know, what female empowerment you know, writing in that early age and, and writing this seminal novel that stood the test of time. So if Mary Shelley features that, I got to pick it up. Yeah, it, the the through line in the series is she is meeting famous horror writers. Oh, my God, that's great. Famous figures in horror. It's very good. Oh, I would love I recommend. to. So she probably meets Poe, but does she meet Lovecraft? That's all I want to know. Does she meet Lovecraft? Ooh, I don't know if I've got to that issue yet. Oh, I would I would be so happy. That would be like, you know, uh, orgasmic for me to get to that <laughs> issue. Not that most appearances of Elvira isn't orgasmic already, you know. <laughs> but, okay, okay. <laughs> so these two, these two issues, the first one that we're going to be talking about, issue number three, is notable because it was actually published without the consent of the comics book code. Because it features some implied nudity in a few mm -hmm. panels, which you, you might mm -hmm. remember. But then subsequent issues were again published under the auspices of the comic book code. Because uh, the editor does mention in the, um, in the letter pages <clears throat> in later issues that it didn't really work out for them. And I wonder what he meant by that. Like, how didn't it work out for them? But they went back to the, the comic book code after that. Still, um, notable... You know, because it's one of the, the few comics during that era to, to blatantly challenge the code <clears throat> until it was finally, you know, done away with later on. So um, that's in itself Issue a big deal. Has pretty significant nudity in it. Um, I yep. think when they were like, we don't have to do the code, they went to, well, what, how do we make our stories a little bit, you know, how do we push the limits a little bit? And so definitely ramped up the nudity did not really ramp up the gore i would like want them to i think i think I would, they, they missed an opportunity to ramp up the gore with without the with the, without the authority stepping in they could have they could have gotten a little gnarlier with it perhaps no, I, I agree <laughs> they could have i mean there were superhero comics at the time that showed more gore than this um yeah you know, um and um you know uh, a couple of years uh, or just at the same time, at this uh, point in time, um, 
you know, Eclipse was publishing the Miracle Man series from Alan Moore. That was a superhero comic which featured ama insane amounts of, of body horror and gore. So obviously Marvel and DC were still playing it safe. But, you know, the point was that they published Watchmen during 1986 as well, which is Alan Moore's <laughs> take. And that that didn't have too much gore. But you get a, you got a guy being exploded at the end, you know, disintegrated with, with bloody bits flying everywhere in issue 12 of Watchmen. So, you know, obviously Pretty. they were moving towards that, you know. Um, but, yeah, I know what you mean. They could have put it into these pages. If they went the nudity route, they could have at least also gone the the opposite route with with the the, the blood and guts right um, but so, all just across the board yeah <laughs> yeah damn Punch it up. <laughs> yeah if you're gonna do in for a penny in for a pound right <laughs> so exactly <laughs> so i'm gonna be talking about this first issue which um i'm gonna be more formal and uh you know deliver the specs to the listeners this is um the one i'm gonna be introducing is elvira's house of mystery number three and it was published in uh, May of 1986. The on-sale date was February of 1986, though. And it was 75 cents, 32 pages. The editor was Sal Amendola. And it featured uh, two stories, although the uh, bit featuring Elvira as the, the hostess is also strangely titled Retribution, uh, which is sort of a story in itself with her just bantering with the House of Mystery, who can talk, which can talk in fact, throughout the series. It's like um, engaging in witty repartee with uh, Elvira throughout the series. And then you've got two stories, The Ballad of Hanging Rock being the first one, and then One Way Passage. And um, uh, I'm also going to introduce your issue specs later on, uh, uh, Misty, but we'll do okay. this issue first. Um, the cover of this issue was done by Dennis Cowan, a great artist, and then inked by Dick Giordano, and the first story that we're going to be talking about, Ballad of Hanging Rock, was written by uh, Joey Cavalieri, the writer, and uh, Stan Walk and Dick Giordano uh, on the art. And uh, Elizabeth Berube as the colorist, Duncan Andrews as the litterer. So I really like the story. Um, it's not my favorite. The second one is the one I normally, um, you know, glom onto most. But the first one is definitely great because it, it does feature death as a horror host as well in the form of a, a, a singing troubadour right yeah. misty so I, i'm always a fan of death showing up in his skeletal form uh, in different costumes that's why he's one of my favorite horror hosts for instance in the weird war tales dc comic um, <laughs> i've mentioned on, on a previous show he's my absolute favorite uh, comic book horror host but um, i'm gonna give them the uh quick synopsis so sit tight. Um, hopefully this shouldn't be too long, listeners. Okay. All right, here we go. As our issue opens, we see Elvira at her dramatic best running around the House of Mystery in a cowgirl outfit. Apparently, she's decided to indulge herself in a spot of role-playing and reveals that she's hankering to hook up with one of them sexy cowboys from the silver screen. After indulging in some trademark witty banter with the sentient House of Mystery, who reminds her that she's on a mission to find Cain. Uh, Misty, that's, this is significant. She's on a mission to find Cain, the, the former caretaker of the mysterious abode. Um, our story gets underway. Elvira is transported by the house through a mirror to the Old West uh, in order to learn appreciation for good old-fashioned supernatural retribution. At least that's the reason given by the house. And upon arrival in an arroyo, she witnesses death 
in the form of a singing troubadour astride a horse, crooning a bone ballad of love gone horribly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I love this character so much. Oh, he's so cool. And the lyrics to the song is just great. And this song, by the way, listeners, is known as the Ballad of Hanging Rock. And so you, you just know it's going to feature a hanging, which, which harkens back to our very first introductory line where I introduced you, Misty. Um, and then cue our first tale properly. The story starts with a young, skinny dipping aficionado by the name of Faye, who is being molested by Nick Dundee, a local thug. Uh, luckily for Faye, her fiancé, Phil Brown, shows up just in time to beat the tar out of Nick. And the young lovers then ride off into the sunset, leaving a bruised Nick behind. And in a rage, he vows that they'll never find happiness, not as long as he draws breath. So that sort of sets the stage there already for what you probably know is going to happen. Yeah, Nick ha really has it out for, uh, <laughs> for well, yeah. her... Say. Yeah, for really? Faye, because she kind of, she she rejected him, she questioned his manhood, and then had her boyfriend, who apparently had milk in his veins, beat him up. Yeah, <laughs> that's apparently a thing that you can be made fun of for in the wild west. Having milk in your veins, I think that was good, you know, get some calcium going, <laughs> strong bones. <laughs> they probably had a lack of that, just drinking, you know, the odd bit of goat's milk who knows anyway it's a compliment these days folks that's what i'm getting to <laughs> so then time passes right misty phil and faye are ready to tie the knot um uh, phil's father even comes over you know for the wedding of his son he's a, a likable train conductor he pulls into the local station in his train <laughs> just to show up for the wedding but no <laughs> no sooner had phil recited his vows than he is gunned down by nick dundee in front of the shocked guests and, of course, the horrified bride. So as Nick flees, he's apprehended by a marshal and um, in the, then in order to avoid a lynching, which is um, fun and games in the Old West for the local bored populace, um, they quickly, you know, shepherd him onto the train, which is, in fact, being driven by the old conductor whose son has just been murdered by this fugitive who's now being put on the train. And... Um, they're rushing him off to Hanging Rock, which I presume is a nearby town where there's a judge and jury who will quickly convict him to hang. Um, and the old conductor, in fact, uh, tries to get in some parting shots, you know, uh, to Nick. And he says that, I swear I'll see you at Hanging Rock. I'll see you hang there for killing my son. But Nick scoffs at this and he, in fact, make, makes his escape while the train is in motion. He strangles the marshal and then... He blows Conductor Brown, Nick Brown's dad, uh, or I should say uh, Phil Brown's dad, to Kingdom Come, right, Misty? Yeah. Uh, but he does attempt to slow the train because the train has been running all this time while he's making an escape. And then he's dismayed to find that the machine, the train, will not yield to him. And that, in fact, there are some ghostly hands, presumably which he cannot see, which is still steering the train at supernatural speed, in fact, towards its des destination. And so Nick is trapped on this train. He can jump off. He would die if he does. He arrives at Hanging Rock, greeted by a posse of marshals. And then they take him to the gallows. Moments before he's set to dangle, Nick's eyes fall on uh, someone in the crowd. Um, this is the murdered train conductor, who, strangely enough, is strapped into a wheelchair with uh, his dead orbs staring at Nick. 
And this, yeah. yeah, this makes good on his vow that he would be there to see the murderer of his son swing, no matter the cost. <laughs> wow, what a tale. What did you think of this one, Misty? Oh, well, okay. So, well, first of all, the Nick character is just the worst, isn't he? He's just bad from the first panel. He's bad to the, the bone. He's watching Faye swim naked, and he steals her clothing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what a... That's not how what you a get a douche. Like, you don't, you don't, like, steal their clothes and then threaten them from the... From yeah, I don't like... think I don't think he was intent on, you know, sexual assault at that point in time. He he thought that was flirting. I at least that's this the, the idea that I got. Or am I wrong here, Misty? Because I am not sure what he was trying to accomplish with that because he just comes out of the gate just being terrible. So like he had never had a chance with Faye. No. <laughs> but this looks He like. never did. I mean, it seems he could have forced himself on her, but he doesn't. He wants her to agree to enter into a relationship with him simply based on the fact that he insults her, her fiancé, Phil, and says that, look how terrible this, this guy is that you picked. You should be with a real man. <laughs> so he sort of wants to shame her into yeah, being with he, him. Exactly. He feels maybe entitled to yeah. her hand because he is saying, hey, I'm the tougher guy. Your fiancé has milk in his veins, so... <laughs> You should marry me, somebody who does not have milk in their face. Yeah, he's obsessed with dairy, dairy products or whatever, with dairy throughout this this <laughs> issue. Um, he's got some great, um, some great lines. I have some some fun favorite bits of dialogue from him. Yeah, I mean, the, he's he's a character in itself, and like you said, the dialogue is what sort of um, introduces him to the readers and conveys his character. Uh, it's brilliant. I mean. The writer here is Joey Cavalieri, who's, who was a, a good writer for the time. He didn't write much, but he really shone in this story. And, um, you know, uh, most of it's done through, like you say, the dialogue, which has got this old West patois to it. A uh, bit of slang thrown in there as well. We don't know how accurate it might be. Most of it might be taken from Wild West movies, you know, Westerns of the time. But I think it's pretty cool. It reads like a charm. I really like reading the it's dialogue. Great. There's the this there's this moment where Nick is on the train and he's talking to the conductor and he says, "Stop the train, you old hoot owl." <laughs> <laughs> and there's another line, "You'll be buzzard bait before I'm through with you." Oh, that is cool. And he's with... got some good lines. It's a shame he's such a bad guy because he's really eloquent, or you know, he's got a. Well, this but... shows you he doesn't he doesn't go for the the regular <laughs> shithead shit kicker, something with shit in the title or uh, you know uh, it doesn't drop the f bomb fuck this fucker or whatever, which is what most people probably would have done back then. He becomes really innovative in his use of the language. So like yeah, you say, he's called, sort of like the Shakespeare of the old west. <laughs> the old hoot owl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I won't be able to do it as well as you, Misty. <laughs> <laughs> you come from that western uh, stock <laughs> the frontiers women midwestern northern midwestern oh that's right yeah. i better get my geography right. straight <laughs> my which is probably more obvious to some people than it is to other people nah, not to me not to this you know foreign bastard <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was interesting you could definitely see the, the nudity um 
it with when Faye when she's sleeping, you see her like full back. There's a little bit of exposed, slight boob, and then there's another frame towards the end of that, the last frame on that page where they just have her butt kind yeah, of. Yes, like, a butt crack. The there's definitely a butt crack. You know, definitely. Your whole butt crack. Yeah. So it's just kind of like okay, all right. But, you know, gotta. If you don't have the coat on there, you got to sneak a little more butt in into it. You know, might as well. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the art itself, you know, lends it to to that kind of because it's sort of very beautiful. I mean, all throughout this entire issue, the female form is drawn beautifully by Stan Walk and Jake Diordano. Um, El, well, you kind of have to do that if you're going to draw Elvira most of the time. But I, you know, I I quite enjoyed. I mean, obviously because she's half naked, that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed it. But this is not something you would see in a comic often. And for me, this situation wasn't titillating because she was in danger of being assaulted, right? So at this point in time, I was really worried for her. You know, so I wasn't really focused on... I was more focused on her nakedness as a as a form of vul vulnerability at this time, which is sort of mm -hmm. horror in, in itself. It lends itself to the horror in the story. Definitely. It's hard to handle a situation when you're also trying to cover all your parts, yeah. too. That's right, especially a situation where violence is sort of going to be a given soon. You know, um, I think it was in a Stephen King book where I first read that about how difficult it is to fight naked. I think it was one of the Dark Tower books, which also sort of has a Western bent, you know, genre with a gunslinger and, and that kind of thing. They had to fight naked <laughs> for some reason. And, um, you know, the, Stephen King comments on the fact that that is ridiculously hard for any man to do, but also for a woman. <laughs> oh, my fight. gosh. Yeah. You have to get over many levels of exposure, oh, being yeah. exposed and feeling exposed and then have the confidence to not only be naked, but just be throwing punches and like, you know, Harley Quinn. action. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I... I I mean, they do it well here. There's a great fight scene between Phil and Nick in the water. Um, it's like a full page of just, I think, four panels or, or two large panels yeah. of fighting and then two... You know, wrestling. Wrestling, yeah. <laughs> and you've even got great sound effects. You've got the regular thud, then you've got a splat, and then you've got one bog <laughs> sound effect, which is he, apt. He bogs because... him on the chin. He yeah. bogs him... Right on the chin, right down into the water. And they're fighting in a bog, huh? So get out of here. That's brilliant. So, there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well done um, to the letterer um, who's uh, Duncan Andrews on that one. <laughs> he was doing yeah. those sound effects. And, you know, then, Misty, we get more scenes of the troubadour, sort of there's this, this passage of time. Uh, after they ride away to get married uh, with the troubadour just singing about the wedding bells and and the revenge being planned by Nick. And then, you know, obviously you have the, the moment of tragedy, which is shown in one single panel beautifully where they're, they've just been married, Faye and, um, and Phil, and then they're kissing. And then sort of in the background of that panel where they're kissing, there's sort of the, they're, they've become ghostly images. And there's a single uh, panel of this rifle uh, pe peeking through this, peering through this uh, window pane, sort of sighting the target. And then you see it's Nick. It ties it into the next frame really well because you see the the gun barrel pointing out the window. And then in the next frame, you see yeah. Nick sitting in a chair by the window, pointing the gun out of the window. 
and it kind of almost creates this like this... circle of mo- movement yeah. while where you are swirling with the kissing couple while also mm. moving into the room with Nick and then you swirl back towards the couple and Nick is firing the gun. Yeah, this is definitely one of the, the pages I'll include on the on the website for the listeners to ogle because this is a great page. I mean, it sort of creates this, like you say, this flowing effect where the action flows into the next panel seamlessly and then the middle panel doesn't even have any separation of panels even though it's two different scenes. Yeah. It's basically just separated by the blast of this gun. And then you see Nick's, Nick collapsing in the arms of his bride. And then there's the, the panel after that again shows the background as Nick sort of like sneering, uh, you know, congratulating his, himself on finally getting revenge. And then you see um, sort of uh, uh, Phil kneeling, um, you know, at the feet of... Uh, his bride, which I thought was was weird, because I at first thought, oh man, she he never get to remove her garter with his teeth. <laughs> this is sort of like, oh, it's never gonna happen, but he's still trying. But uh, I, <laughs> no, that's something horrible to say. <laughs> but you know, terrible. Oh, and then there's this this heart rending scene. Oh my God, Phil, Phil, darling, don't leave me, and he's dead. And you can see her veil covered with blood which is a nasty effect, but, you know, suitable for a horror, you know, story. But then, you know, Nick gets captured pretty That's easily. Right. Yeah. <laughs> By uh, Wiley Marshall, he's brought in, and then you've got some more troubadour singing, and then you've got a few scenes of Elvira saying, oh, if this guy's got to sing, at least he could do it in key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's irritated. Irritated I mean, with death. In her defense, his song is getting pretty long at that point. I think he's like four verses in. Maybe. Yeah, true. So, true. But yeah, she's got her ears covered. She can't handle it. That's right. Yeah. So you know, I, I enjoyed Elvira being inserted into the story like that, just to remind you that no matter how dark it gets, you've still got Elvira. You know, over there, she's gonna, you know, insert a bit of trademark humor into the situation but this story is tough to do that with because it's it's got a very serious and depressing premise if you think about it right uh, misty um, yeah it's heartbreaking when when they're getting married you really feel for them they seem really in love although it's only four panels you're like this is a whole love story and i believe in it and i believe in this couple and they're gonna make it yeah but they're not <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not gonna make it, no. And then they even his make. dad gets killed. I mean, Phil's dad who showed up for the wedding, he gets killed. I don't care about the marshal who gets strangled, you know, with the handcuffs <laughs> by Nick. I, but but the dad gets blown away. And then okay, but he does get his, you know, Nick gets his comeuppance by having the dad, you know, make good on his promise to see him swing at Hanging Rock, where the dad turns up. Now, what do you think, Misty? Is the father of of Phil, the train conductor, is he dead at the end when he's sitting strapped in this chair tied up with ropes? Or did... I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I was going to ask you that same question. Someone obviously it's strapped him to the... To be... Yeah. Why And why is he strapped to a chair? Yeah, the only way I could understand that is if he made his wishes known to someone other than the marshal saying that he, w- he, he dearly wants to be there to see his the murder of his son swing... And that that person then strapped him to the chair, promised him that. Yeah. I know what it is. He is dead. He is dead, and they propped up his dead body in a chair, 
which is why they need the ropes because he can't hold himself up because he's a dead guy. And yeah. that is why it's so horrifying because he's a dead man with his eyes wide open. Yeah. Oh, maybe they did that as a matter of routine because, you know, when someone dies who needs to see vengeance taken on the murder of, of one of their loved ones, they might just you know display the corpse there too to sort of make the murderer <laughs> repent. I don't know. Him along. You don't want to leave him at the morgue where he could be eaten by coyotes or something, you know, like, <laughs> you're going to keep an eye on your dead bodies in the Wild West. Things can happen to good them. Good point. Very good mm -hmm. point. Yeah. I mean, I thought at first he might just be paralyzed, but, um, uh, you know, it doesn't look like that because there's definitely some supernatural aspect to this, uh, Misty, because he says that, you know, even through the executioner's hood or, or the, the hood that he wears before he's hanged. Nick can see the or feel the eyes boring through the mask and he can in mm -hmm. fact still see the eyes glaring at him. So then Death ends the story with a little bit of a, a, a lyric there saying the bushwhacker called Nick Dundee thought he could escape me but I was waiting for him at high noon at, on the clock at Hanging Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so no wonder Elvira got tired of that song. But, oh, I love this tale. Um, it's good. And, I, and who doesn't love a singing skeleton cowboy? Only crazy people, from, from my mind. <laughs> I mean, uh, for, for them, they might be sane, but, you know, if you're a horror fan, come on. Death on a horse, that's, that's a given, come the apocalypse, and then with a guitar instead of, instead of a, a scythe, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. And, and the the story has a train kind of a train chase scene almost it's got trains it has what else do you need in a wild west story it has a fight has wrestling wrestling lots of, <laughs> lots of gunplay mm -hmm. gunplay yeah. tragedy oh everything blood yeah yep. it's like it's like django unchained but for white people <laughs> no 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 <laughs> that doesn't work at all <laughs> So, Misty, moving on to uh, the next issue. Uh, this one is titled One-Way Passage. Now, I've mentioned that this is actually my favorite, so it has to be damn good to eclipse the first story. But I, I don't, you might not agree with me, but I really enjoyed this story more. It was very straightforward, but lots of great art. And um, uh, it's written by one of my favorite writers in comics, Robert Kaniger who is probably more well-known for his war comics, but, you know, he did write a lot of tales for Weird War Tales, which is horror slash war. And, in fact, he's he's done all kinds of genre uh, genres in comic books, so I really... That explains a lot. Hearing you say that, that explains a lot. Yeah, so I'm sure as we go, you know, along with, with subsequent shows, Misty, you'll be able to read more of Kaniger's stuff. And you, in fact, might have already read a lot of his stuff because he wrote a lot for DC in the 70s and 80s. And he did write a couple of horror stories. And in fact, he wrote a lot of the, the tales in the Elvira series. So, I mean, there's uh, one in the second comic, in issue 10, that we're going to be talking about later, where, that he also wrote. Excellent. Mm, so, Very yeah. cool. He, he's got a wide skill set he's he, as a writer i'm sure he's, he's fantastic he can yeah well i mean he, he, yeah i think you're gonna like him because <laughs> he, writer he writes good <laughs> yeah and he does take a strong female you know um perspective into account when he writes because he used to write for wonder woman in the 19 the late 40s he wrote uh, right after wonder woman's creator 
passed away, he wrote her title for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, whenever he has the chance to introduce female characters, they're usually very singular. So uh, of course, there might be a problem with misrepresentation every now and then. But you know, he's he's very uh, he's a writer I respect in terms of trying to give every different kind of person their due. You know. So, oh, and he certainly does that in this story. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, this is one of those tales where you know. Uh, well, uh, you're talking about One Way Passage now, right? The one that we're yeah. going to be talking about. Yeah, yeah, he does that. He yeah. does. I mean, yeah. um, just to give the listeners a bit of a, a summary of One Way, it's a very straightforward story. I think you'd agree um, with that, Misty. It's not really, there aren't many twists, although the twist comes very fairly quickly in the very beginning of the tale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me get to the synopsis here. Um uh, One Way Passage, written by Robert Kaniger and with art by Jess Jodleman, colors by Lisbeth Rebay. Um, and the synopsis is as follows. Okay, so right after the tale of the Ballad of the Hanging Rock, uh, Elvira has a bit more of a chat with the House of Mystery. And again, the House of Mystery stresses that it wants her to understand the significance and importance of supernatural retribution. And nowhere is it better elucidated than in this particular tale. Because yeah, this... This, is, this is it. <laughs> this is exactly this is where it comes from, indeed. Supernatural retribution out the wazoo, right? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah, the tale just opens with a motley crew of passengers from various backgrounds and nationalities. Um, and they find themselves inexplicably sharing an elevator with a sinister-looking elevator operator, and none of them have any idea how they got on this elevator. Um, and each of them are let off on a different floor. So they disembark on different floors. The tale unfolds then, and we see that this building in which the elevator is set is in fact hell. And each floor is a different level of purgatory created specifically for each specific passenger on this elevator, or like we're going to call it, um, Misty, the Hellevator. Um, ah! <laughs> yeah, and what a great premise, you know, and then we get to meet the characters. Uh, the, the, one of them is General Momo, a genocidal African dictator. He steps onto a floor where he's branded with hot irons by demons for all eternity, you know, your typical hellish scenario of, of eternal punishment. And then you've got a Miss Benton. She's a poisoner. She finds herself on a floor where she's cast into some kind of a toxic lake filled with zombified corpses who drag her to the bottom. Ugh, chilling. Um, <laughs> you've got a couple, Vicky Blake and Alan Forrest. Uh, I think they're two domestic terrorists and they've got a love of explosives. I think they mentioned that in their conversations. They're sentenced to torture at the hands of demons uh, while simultaneously being strung up naked and there's the nakedness coming into play in fact most of the people are naked in this <laughs> most of the people are naked yeah <laughs> whoa yeah once they step out of that elevator it's like for being in hell is you cannot wear clothes in hell like if you wear clothes they burn them off of you unless you're Elvira, because she's just an observer in this story she's just observing she's using this this chance to work on her tan not <laughs> She'll never have a tan. Her pale, pale skin is just perfect. Mm. Uh, so, you know, um, a couple more people 
get their comeuppance. You've got a Mr. Stevens, a slumlord, who caused the deaths of his tenants through uh, shoddy maintenance. And he's forced to enter a level where he is chained to a bed and nibbled on by rats and, and other vermin, just like yeah. his tenants Sorry. were. Oof. That's damn freakish. And uh, then you... Yeah, love it. Uh, this is very... I mean, imaginative. You must have... Uh, you must think that Robert Kenniger had a ball coming up with these punishments. I mean, I would. <laughs> <laughs> and all of these people are scum. Right, Misty? So, yeah. I love it. Yeah. It gives you a good feeling, a, a little warm place deep in your heart to know that they're being taken care of in hell. <laughs> and, you know, the yeah. origins of supernatural justice. Exactly. That goes way back to the very beginning and um, uh, appreciated. The devil's actually a good guy, if you look at it from this perspective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> then you've got an Arab guy named um, Selah, I think. Selah. He's forced to be immolated over and over again to atone for the hundreds of lives his campaign of international terrorism has taken. And then the most despicable of all, in my mind, a photographer who turns out to be a pedophile and child killer, and mm -hmm. he is sentenced to be swallowed by a gigantic uh, anaconda or boa constrictor, and he's doomed to be digested for all eternity, a la Boba Fett in the Great Pit of Carcoon in Return of the Jedi, <laughs> to be digested slowly for a thousand years, but in this case way more. Um, yeah, and that's basically... Oh, and then wait, before I forget, uh, finally we've got a Miss Ash, who's a Hollywood starlet. And she attempted suicide, but she's given a second chance by the elevator operator, who turns out, of course, to be the devil. And, um, and as the tale wraps up, Elvira confronts the devil directly, uh, seductively even, if I'm not mistaken, Misty. <laughs> she's doing like a little one finger on the lip kind Ooh. of... She's like, oh, this guy's hot, literally and figuratively. <laughs> well, he is incredibly buff. Like, damn, this yeah. devil is jacked. He does not skip leg day or arm day or chest day. Or yeah, this is this is why probably why Alvara got into this uh, horror business in the first place to just eventually meet up with this completely ripped Lucifer. And, They're um, all. All of the devils in this whole story are all incredibly fit. <laughs> You're right. Well, they kind of have to be to heft people like that fat-ass General Mamo, you know, around. <laughs> I, I have, like, a little bit of an issue with the way he was drawn a little bit. Like, I don't know. His character was very large. I don't know if I can really speak to it very, very well. But there was something about... This scene of the buff state like Satan guys all standing in a circle around his naked body and they're branding him and I'm just kind oh, of like it harkens back to slavery metaphors from, maybe right yeah yeah where it's like I know he's supposed to be this evil dictator character and and deserves this or whatever but then I was also there's just something like a little wasn't just wasn't quite sitting right and that could just be me being like. Yeah, okay, maybe you're right. KW, <laughs> you know. I know like, what you mean. No, okay, I see it now. I didn't see it earlier. I was wondering, like, why is why does branding have to be a thing for him? Because, you know, the way he killed his victims was probably just firing squads and starvation, right? Um, 
the, the devil says, I sentence you to be decorated for all eternity because he liked decoration so much for all of his being a dictator. and Yeah, you know, the medals they... he wore on his, you know, yeah. uh, sutia as a, as a general. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, you're right. That image is very disturbing, having the brand, this African yeah. guy. Yeah, that's not good. kind of disturbing if you were... Maybe not a white person, or like, ooh, ooh, I don't know about that. And the same yeah. kind of thing, treatment of the um, anti-Zionist character who's like shouting stuff about Israel as they're in in the in the elevator. It's like this is this is a Zionist trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can really, when you were talking about the writer of the of this comic having written for weird war stories mm. i was like oh that explains it because there's definitely i see some kind of like pro-america 80s military stuff in here maybe yeah. where it's the african dictator and the the anti-zionist terrorist character you know kind of classic 80s bad guys from an American military perspective, mm. you know? I think he was definitely viewing it like that because, like, like he's predominantly been writing war comics his whole life, you know, even though he ventured briefly into superhero comics. But, yeah, now that you mention that, okay, this is good that you mentioned it because this is something I might not have been able to see, right, Misty? So, <laughs> but, you know, don't disparage <laughs> one of my favorite writers, though. <laughs> no, but, no, 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 no. But, yeah, this is reprehensible, just... yeah. I think one of those things where I sometimes think like you know you try to put a story in the context of when it happened yeah. and who the writer was and what their background is and so I can definitely see the like the influence there is mm. what's going on with American politics at the time is represented in who is being punished in this story <laughs> yeah yeah you might be right there you're definitely right um, you know, I'm I'm berating myself for not having seen that earlier. I was just so wrapped up in, yeah, these guys deserve it. But the imagery, <laughs> the imagery might evoke well, some. Deserve it, you know. They people do terrible things all over all over the place, so they they could deserve it. But you know, you can see like it does sort of just reveal a little bit about the context of when when the story was written and, and maybe the writer who wrote it, you know, maybe. Yeah. You know what they sh what they needed to balance it out. They needed an American politician or a, an international politician. This guy, the dictator, he doesn't really qualify for that. They needed someone more seedy, someone more backhanded in terms of dealing with American politics or, you know, um someone who's who's seemingly good on the outside but, you know, um I'm not saying just American politics. It could be British, it could be European, any anybody. They needed a politician here too to sort of balance out all the the evil, you know, in the world. But they didn't have that, yeah. you know. The powerful groups that are represented here are like the the leaders of other countries. Yeah, They're not exactly. so much not picking on our own leaders, of course. Yeah, they didn't even have a <laughs> drug dealer, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, we got to kind of these days pick on our own leaders. <laughs> Me on the South African leaders, you on the <laughs> folks back home. <laughs> But oh, yeah. we'll, we might we'll get do a to that. that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Insert a bit of real life horror later on. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, you know, I ultimately, I love this story. Um, even though it didn't have that bittersweet element of the first one, um, this one really gave me that sense of, yeah, you know, damnation, hellfire, kill these, or, or well, they're already dead. I mean, torture these horrible folks. And, of course, it did have a bit of a, well... 
quote-unquote happy, I don't know if you'd say, ending with this Miss Ash being given a second chance, proving that the devil's not all bad in this story, at least. <laughs> a little bit, but then he points at Elvira, and he's like, take care, Elvira, that you never become come before me. Like, yeah, because that means like, she's not going to get a second chance. <laughs> <laughs> She'd figure out a way out of hell. She does it in her comic that came out in 2018. Which which (laughs) I now want to read more than ever. (laughs) And then basically the the, the comic ends. There's some weird final page where some G-men or something show up outside the House of Mystery, sort of looking in at Elvira, you know, peeping peeping tongs. Mm -hmm. Peeping toms. And then they, they run away. And then the very last panel is Elvira again with her finger in her mouth <laughs> looking at the backs of these trench coated <laughs> figures. Oh, man, that's, this is weird. But uh, that doesn't that's not really significant. You know, that doesn't come up much during the subsequent issues. So overall, uh, Misty, I, I really enjoyed this issue. Um, it's hard to pick between this one and the next, but we'll get to that. I do want to quickly introduce our rating system, though, as we want to do. We have a different rating system for every episode where we pick some object or some horror trope to be part of the rating system. And this time we're going with the elevator rating system. So I'm going to let you go first. How many elevators out of five would you give uh, this entire comic, both stories together? What's your rating? I am going to go with, Do we, can we do half points? Yeah, of course we can, yeah. I would give this one a 3.5 out of 5. Oh, okay, brilliant. Uh, that's very close to my score. Um, I'm okay. going to I'm gonna give it a uh, 3 out of 5, and that's just because I don't want to sit, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm too eager to, to give comics a high score because we're going to, down the line in our future on this podcast where I talk about some really seminal comics. And this one was great, but it's not, you know, the best of all time. So I'm going to give it a three out of five based yeah. on the fact that, you know, the stories were were both really good. The art was great in both instances. But, you know, um, the, the ending was, bo- in both cases, your typical kind of horror ending. Um, what I, you know, in terms of, you know, the retribution angle... Um, but not predictable, I would say, not predictable by far, you know, by a long shot. Uh, just um, there's going to be comics that are even greater than this going to be discussed, and I want to don't want to seem inconsistent in saying, oh, this this comic is this one that we just talked about is a four, whereas I'm going to give another comic like you know Alan Moore Swamp Thing a four or something, and then people are going to think, what the hell? <laughs> you have no integrity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So You're just I'm gonna throwing fours out willy nilly. You know, I I normally do that on my Goodreads. Most of my books are four. What what does that say about me? <laughs> <laughs> so you I'm... just read a lot of books that are a four. Okay, I mean that's <laughs> if you want to get like surface level about it. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. You know, in four. In books is right at that four level. You know, it could be a compliment because you know it is a compliment. I'm sure you intended like that, but in. Chinese culture, which I'm a part of now because I live in Taipei, right, Misty? Four means death. That's right. Uh-oh. The, the, the character and the word for four is similar to the character and the word for death. That's why they don't have a fourth floor in buildings over here, especially not hospitals. And uh, four is an unlucky number to mention. Nobody wants to be number four in the class or in line. 
Mm, that's interesting. I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna go with it. Four is my score, but not for this one. <laughs> this one's a three. Yeah. Yeah, this one's a 3.5 out of 5 for me. The singing Skeleton Cowboy was really a highlight. Yeah. Definitely love a singing Skeleton Cowboy in front of a sunset. Um, the second story I thought was maybe, a, although it was supposed to be an illustration of where supernatural justice comes from, it was still to me, I was like, this is wait, this is so on the nose. This is exactly. There's almost hardly even a story there. It was kind of like lining people up and then knocking them down. Exactly. Yeah. You know, kind of like, I don't know. This is sort of. Yeah, it's very straightforward. Not much of a story. Just. Yeah. Yeah. Just punishing them. Yeah, the first one had more of a story, of course. Um, But uh, for some reason, I keep coming back to this story. I just like it, it makes me think about what these folks' lives were really like. You know, they briefly mentioned what they did, but, you know, I want to know kind of more about them. Um, so, yeah, but you're right. They're basically... Each one, of those, each one of those characters could have been their own story. Yeah, yeah, that's what I like about it. You know, it sort of makes me think, makes me want to come up with stories for them. But I get what you mean. The, the second one had very little plot. Just mm -hmm. the, But the, this concept of a halivator... Well, that appealed to me almost as well more than the singing troubadour skeleton. So, well, we're, we're we've reached a consensus, Misty. This is a good issue. Three point five and five and three for me. So, what about the next one though? I think for the next one, I'm quickly going to drop the specifics, and then you're going to do the synopsis. Am I mm -hmm. right? So yes. the, the next one is issue ten, and by this point in time, the editor had changed. Uh, the editor on the first four issues was Sal Amendola, but on the uh, the rest of the, the series, which is the, the the next seven issues, we had um, Ed Hannigan. So Ed had introduced a letters page, you know, and he had gotten fans involved more. He, he'd even in, uh, instilled or initiated some kind of competition, a write-in competition, um, you know, among the fans. And it seemed to work for a while, but ultimately the comic fizzled and low sales caused them to cancel it. But, um, you know, uh, I really liked his editing style. He also had a little bit of jokes at the end on the letter pages. And he was uh, doing this comic by the time, you know, issue 10 came around. He was full on in editing mode. Uh, two stories, Death for Rent and Low Man on the Totem Pole. Cover artist is Joe Orlando. Now, the first comics cover was already great. It had Elvira standing, you know, sort of in profile with a smoking gun to her mouth, blowing the smoke away. And, um, you know, that was done by Jick Giordano. But this cover is my favorite, Misty, of the issue you'll be talking about, issue 10, with Elvira as a teacher teaching various yeah. horror monster kids. <laughs> what do you think about this cover? What could be more 80s than a sexy teacher? Oh, well, I had some sexy teachers Which in the 80s. Which is something that you probably, I don't know, is you could really get away with these days in 2020 where people might be like, that's inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn, damn the modern age. Was such a huge <laughs> thing in the 80s. It was huge. It was in like all the music videos. You Movies, know. yeah. Kids it's... falling in love with crushes on their oh, teachers. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, this follows in the footsteps of horror comics or I don't know other comics in general that show something on the cover that 
never happens inside the comic book. <laughs> oh yeah, that happens a lot, especially like, in horror anthologies. These stories, there's no story in this comic book where Elvira is a teacher or in a classroom. <laughs> there's no monster children. <laughs> Good point. Just, just for the cover. Yeah, the cover is amazing, though. I mean, that's, like you say, a story in itself. Just imagine what that must be like. But, yeah, you've got these great little characters. You've got a witch girl. You've got a mummy boy. You've got some kind of a Frankenstein kid, Frankenstein monster-like kid. You've got a vampire. Then you've got, I think, what is a creature of the Black Lagoon? You just see the back of his head. <laughs> and this little werewolf kid that had well, they wear spectacles, and he's been folding a paper airplane, and he's looking at the reader with this little grin on his face. This, yeah, you know, he's about to. He's about to throw that paper airplane. And you just know what he's aiming for. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, that was uncalled for. But he's got this little wolfish grin on his face, right? Uh, it's great. Wolfish. He is a werewolf. Yeah, so. yeah. Very apt. <laughs> yep. So that, yeah. this cover was done by Joe Orlando. And Joe Orlando is a big name in horror comics. He came from the EC Comics era... And then he took over as editor for House of Mystery in 1968, wrote a lot of tales, edited most of them. He's a legend, and he's back to do the cover. He started off as an artist, and you see his art is still great, and he did the cover for this issue. So just before you start with the synopsis, Misty, the first tale, Death for Rent, was again written by Robert Kaniger, that old uh, guy who seems to <laughs> you know, be my favorite writer, but you know that you've pointed out some flaws at damn it <laughs> oh they're not flaws that's just it's just sort of me trying to understand where somebody is coming from no, as a writer I know. yeah no i know what you mean but, <laughs> but you've definitely made me see him in a whole new light i'm still going to read them though but with a bit of you know um a more informed opinion and then the Ooh. art is by ernesto b patricio with colors by mk van camp that's the first story death for rent second one low man on the totem pole Written by Stan Timmons, art by Joe M. Mantusinio, oh, Mantusinio. Letters by Esfidi, colors Helen Vezzi. All right, Misty, I'm going to hand this over to you. Elvira's House of Mystery, number 10. Uh, the introduction to the first story starts with Elvira. She's inside the House of Mystery. And the House of Mystery, as we know, is a sentient being and is hurrying her to get started to telling, telling us some stories. So it's hurrying her along. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, just, as about she, just as she is about to get started, Kane bursts in and asks Elvira if he can introduce the first story. And he says, it will make the issue a must-have double bag item. Uh, and she, she allows it, but she also lets him have it. And she says, wish I could double bag you. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and I have a question for you. What is a double bag item? Ooh, double bag item. Isn't that one that has been, I don't know, like extra valuable i don't know it, it must be kane yeah. kane is saying it's gonna it's gonna make the issue a double bag item so it sounds like it's gonna be important it's something i was wondering if you knew what that was if it's a really good comic do they put it in two bags yeah i mean um it could i don't know from what i remember of you know 
um, the the double bag thing is doesn't it also have vaguely sexual connotations sometimes? I don't know if I've I've heard it in that context. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's the joke of double bagging with condoms. Oh my god, that's yeah, that's it. Ugh. Oh damn. <laughs> actually that's bad advice do not do that it's not good advice that they it doesn't work that way so just keep it to the one and be safe you know <laughs> you know it might just be we're missing the most the the most common explanation which is like if it's a heavy item or an expensive item you double bag it in order to prevent the bag from breaking i, I don't know that's just what i'm thinking right uh, misty maybe, maybe. listeners listeners if you, you know what a double bag item is please write us at longboxofdarkness at gmail.com. Is that what our email address is? Dark, yeah, darklongbox at gmail.com. <laughs> darklongbox at gmail.com. Answer our questions for us, please. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. So, Kane bursts in. He asks Elvira if he can introduce the story. She's like, okay, I guess. Uh, she's a little irritated, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's good to see him, right? Because he hasn't been in the house of mystery since the 80s so he's 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 missing it you could tell he's missing it yeah he sort of begs so, her he begs her to be allowed to tell to yeah. introduce the story it's like he's 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 a junkie that's you know back to get his fix yeah he's a little bit he's a little bit weaselly about yeah, it yeah <laughs> very weaselly like he has no power anymore not not at least to the level of, on the level that he's used to having you know in the past this yep. is not his house anymore. It's Elvira's now, and she's the mistress he needs to please. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I like how she, she holds it down, too. Yeah. yeah. In Death for Rent, uh, the story stars Elaine and Janet. They are two antique dealers and business partners that are from the city. They are looking for antiques outside of the city when they come across a suspiciously perfect, completely furnished apartment next to a beautiful lake. And they really want to move into this apartment, but they have to compete with a man named Victor Prince, who also wants the apartment. And Victor Prince is a kind of highfalutin character. He introduces himself as Victor Prince Electronics, with an exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> As Whoa. if they show who he is. Wow. Um. <laughs> These days, that wouldn't say much. That would mean, what, are you working in an electronics store? But back then in the 80s, it's like, whoa, you're Steve Jobs or somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, electronics. So, these two antique dealers, they love this apartment. They decide they want it. They race to close the deal with the landlord. But Victor Price is already there. He's already talking to the landlord, trying to secure this apartment for himself. He says money is nothing. He offers to pay double. But the landlord gruffly tells him the apartment is not for rent. And Victor leaves. The women get there, and they think it's all over. But the landlord suddenly becomes very nice to them and tells them that actually they're the right people for the place, that Victor was just the wrong person and that's why he didn't want to rent to him. But they're the right people, so he'll rent them the apartment for whatever they can afford. He's, he's super nice about it. And whatever you can afford, ladies. <laughs> and then he says also the home comes with a robot. And that'll come into play later. 
<laughs> wow, what a sales point! You know what, <laughs> a robot. Well, and lake at least that's already like you got to take it. And the the house is filled with antiques, and they're antique dealers. So I'm just thinking, like, are they content with renting it though, uh, Misty? I mean, wouldn't you have rather had want to buy it because basically they can't do anything with the antiques; they just have to take care of them. But I guess that's enough for them. I guess it's enough for them because they really want the place. If there's something calling them to the place, mm. uh, as as uh, certain locations do in certain scary stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so they they move in, um, and as they're moving in, the goat we see the ghost of a man watching them from behind a tree, and you can tell he's a ghost because he's and he's see-through and uh, it does a close-up on his face and you can see that the ghost is angry he has angry eyes and he's scowling mm. uh, Janet, one of the antique dealers, she starts seeing the ghost of the man around the house she sees him standing out by the tree she sees him outside of her window at night she's starting to get really scared she tells Elaine, but Elaine brushes it off. Elaine's like, mm, you just watch too many scary movies. Yeah. Janet's like, you know, I probably do just watch too many scary movies. <laughs> <laughs> she just sort of like lets herself be ga gaslighted a little bit. Yeah, you know? a little. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, they, actually... they reference Psycho, right? Which is yeah. which has got nothing to do with ghosts, you know, but it, it could be something to do with a stalker or some real people. So at this point in time, they're not suspecting any supernatural happenings. They just think it's a creepy guy, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. She just thinks it's a creepy guy or she's just seen too many scary movies in general. Mm. Um, and Elaine is brushing it off. So if her friend's not scared, then she's like, well, maybe I'll be okay. Um but then Victor Prince shows up, the man who wanted to rent the apartment initially, and he warns, oh, I forgot, oh, gotta go back. Janet actually does not handle her roommates gaslighting her very well, and she eventually leaves. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. she gets in the car and she goes back to the city and she says, you know what, I'm done with this creepy, scary ghost guy and you not believing me. So I'm gonna leave. And Elaine is left there saying, I'm fine. I don't believe her, so I'll be fine. This is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's fine. Yeah. So Janet leaves. She goes back to the city. And then Victor Prince shows up. And Victor Prince warns Elaine that the old man who rented her the, the house has a secret past that he didn't tell them about. And it is revealed that his son's bride left him on his wedding day and the son drowned himself in the lake that's right yeah jeez mm -hmm. what so, a thing to leave out yeah yeah and th so the son had furnished this whole house for him and his bride right before they got married that's why it's all furnished in the nice antique furniture yeah and then his bride left him on the wedding day and the son killed himself in the lake and so that's dark that is pretty dark especially since Probably yeah the he... first flag yeah <laughs> the story. i mean and that also explains the ghostly apparitions 
sort of intense eyes where it's not just opining oh, after his lost love it's sort of like almost a hatred right towards the fact that she left him which is she now being it. translated yeah into a hatred maybe for all women <laughs> i don't know perhaps yeah damn yeah definitely um is he has his eyes set his ghostly eyes set on the light <laughs> <laughs> Um, so after we get that first kind of big red flag, the, the, the old man says, I knew you were the right one. <laughs> so Which is that's creepy. Chilly. <laughs> Very uh, chilly. But he also says, you know, now that I've told you about this, you can leave anytime. And you know, that's always a good sign when somebody's like, well, you can leave anytime. <laughs> mm, yeah. But she, she takes well she she doesn't take the, the, you know that opportunity she sees that as more reason to trust him oh he's so transparent about it i don't think i'll be leaving yeah <laughs> yeah she just doubles down and she assures him that she would not dream of leaving she's being so she's being almost too nice <laughs> come on elaine wake up and smell the the brimstone here <laughs> yeah Misty bog. Ooh, misty, nice one. Smell oh. <laughs> <laughs> the mist of the graves. So uh, the old man then tells her that it is the anniversary of his son's death, and he always scatters flower petals on the lake in his memory. And to just to prove how non-judgmental she is, <laughs> she offers to do this for him. So, unfortunately, that seals her demise because as she reaches out to scatter the rose petals in the lake, she rows out to the lake and she reaches out to scatter some rose petals, she is grabbed by the ghost of the dead son and dragged to a watery grave. Yeah, with the roses floating on top. And, yeah, it's um, really... Oh, that was, that was very... Uh, upsetting it was disturbing because it sort of had some friday the 13th camp crystal lake overtones with him you know like erupting mm -hmm. out of the water grabbing her wrist and dragging her down but yeah al yeah also just uh freakishly scary because at this point in time you didn't know that the ghost could interact with the physical world at all he was just standing around being a perv <laughs> yeah just being creepy spying through the windows and stuff yeah but while the length in which he drowned, he definitely has some more physical presence. So he seems to, he seems to be part of the substance of the water too. The way they draw him, you know, that could just be his transparent nature. But I like the way he sort of looks like a watery kind of being, you know. And then they, yeah, yeah. He's a blue. He's kind of blue as a ghost, and then when he's mixed with the water, he's definitely kind of the ghost the visage of the ghost and the wavy of the water they all kind of moving together um yeah which so it turns out the old man the landlord the father of the son he planned it the whole time it was his all of his plan the whole his plan all along because in the last panel you see him saying you'll never lack for brides <laughs> I'll see that you're never lonely again, son. And then you've got Kane putting up the for rent sign again. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, no, no. This is a great story. I, very creepy, very eerie. I mean, they've got so many horror tropes in here, right, Misty? You've got the voyeurism. You've got the creepy house. Mm -hmm. You've got the haunted factor. Mm -hmm. You've got 
the, the hidden secret. And then you've got the lake. Come on, how many horror stories have a scary lake when you're on a boat and there you... <laughs> and um, it all it all seems to occur in daylight, you know, um, which, which yeah. should make it less scary, but it doesn't. It just makes it even scarier to me because this could happen anytime, anywhere. And this, this old guy's just feeding his son brides to kill. <laughs> and he's so nice too. Like that's almost the, the scariest part is when he's, suspiciously nice to them in the beginning where he's like, well, I'm not going to rent to this guy. I'll rent to you guys for whatever you can pay me. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know that there's something going on. Oh, with damn. Guy, but you just want to believe that he's a nice guy. You know, like yeah. you, you want to believe people are nice people who have good intentions and that he actually wanted to rent the apartment to them because or the house to them because they are antique dealers and they would appreciate it more but no it's because he wants to sacrifice you to the ghost of his dead, dead son, son. <laughs> wow for this i mean it feels like i've read stories like this before but since i've recently read this one this is like one of the greatest ones of that kind of ilk of those stories if you can put it like that because Damn, this one really threw me at the end. I didn't expect it. I I kind of knew something was going to happen in terms of the related to the ghost of the sun, but I didn't th think that it was this old guy basically doing this. And think about it. He's going to keep doing this forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's some extra And Elaine, Elaine is not one of those characters where you just know she's going to get it because she's just a bad person. And you're like, well, she's bad. She's probably going to get it. Yeah, she's uh, a good person. She, this, yeah. She's actually a good person who her crime was trusting this old man <laughs> yeah and caring for her friend and loving antiques and okay her friend got out of there in time but you know you could say maybe her crime was not listening to her friend oh, who was yeah, like that... yo there's a ghost in this house <laughs> <laughs> listen to your gal pal come on <laughs> trust yeah come on elaine believe women <laughs> Just women know best <laughs> Other. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what my wife says, but you know, I've I've yet to to ascertain the the efficacy of that statement. <laughs> well, if she ever tells seeing a ghost, you should listen. <laughs> yeah, there are you. You guys definitely do have more of a, a sixth sense when it comes to these things. I should be able to trust you more, you know. But my my, my <laughs> damn manhood just prevents it. My stubbornness, which will probably cause my death. <laughs> No, but I, I get what you're saying. In this case, both of them are super nice people. They're very gentle. They're very kind. They're very polite. They're, they're, they've they got a great relationship as friends. I mean, there, yep. there's never any hint that it might be a homosexual relationship, although I would have loved that if they could have put that in in early you know, mid-80s DC. It would have added to the story. Uh, but obviously, this ghost, he kills women, you know, who, well, don't only love antiques. But, I mean, that's the criteria his dad needs for someone to stay there. But I, <laughs> I, I have the strong sense of this ghost just has a hatred towards women because he was jilted at the altar. Definitely. Yeah. Very yeah, he, eerie. Keep dragging him down into that watery grave. Exactly. Or until he gets over it, at least. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I mean, great... Uh, story my favorite of the two um but we'll get to the second one just now i just i'm already throwing that out there misty because this one i really enjoyed the second one that i had a few problems with but okay. I, I don't know um we'll, we'll get to i mean um how, how about you did you like the, the this the second one low man on the totem pole the second one is fun it's a romp 
Ah. <laughs> Fun horror romp. Um, it's, there's a there's a great character in the second story. Yeah, it, for, for me, I, it was just too much. You know, they have uh, lots of um, elements in the story and they rush through them. But, you know, we'll talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. I guess you have the synopsis handy. So, uh, yeah, go to yeah. it. Let's listen to what okay. this is about. So the intro to the next story begins with another cane mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Elvira now has a shotgun pointed at Kane. <laughs> she's telling him to leave her comic. <laughs> and she even references the editor, right? Uh, Ed Hannigan that we mentioned earlier. Yep. Uh, oh man, that's great. And Kane references his own immortality and the comics code, which is a bit of breaking yep. the fourth wall. <laughs> says that the comics code won't allow her to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, besides, he's immortal, <laughs> too. Yep. So uh, she's like, fine, what do you want? And he says he will tell her what he wants if she lets him introduce the next story. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, Kane kind of weasels his way into introducing the next story, <laughs> mm. which is Low Man on the Totem Pole. All right, so this story opens with character Quentin Grady, who is flipping through TV channels when he sees the face of his son on a totem pole. And you can tell this character is wealthy and well-traveled because he is in a fancy robe and he's sitting next to a table full of gold objects from exotic places. Exactly. Oh, look at that one, the, the pipe holder. The thing is so intricate. I mean, is that a fantasy character wrestling with a dragon or something? And then on top, there's a lady. And then basically, it's just to hold his pipe. <laughs> it's insane. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he also smokes a pipe. So he's very dignified. He's smoking a pipe. Yep. Um, and he has a butler named Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. So you know he has money. He's got a butler named Jenkins. Yeah, and he's a real bastard because he's hogging the remote. Well, there's nobody else to hog it from, I guess. <laughs> he's a he's a lonely old bastard, um, and he he sees the sun, his face is the sun on a totem pole on a TV channel as he's flipping through the channels, and he calls his butler Jenkins in, and he orders him to call the TV station and get a copy of the film. And then the story does a little bit of a flashback to a little over two years ago on Christmas Eve when Quentin Grady is sitting with his son discussing the family business, which is apparently going to put a pipeline straight through an Eskimo village. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Talk about oil. scum. 80s scumbags. <laughs> Exxon, you know, all of those kind of things that were bugging people at the time. This is the epitome of that. It is. It is. His family business is apparently oil pipeline financing. <laughs> <laughs> and relocating or shooting or first abusing then shooting villagers, basically, as it turns yeah. out. And this is just like the tip of the iceberg for this character, Quentin Grady. <laughs> yeah, there's worse to come. Uh-huh. Um, so he's sitting with his son talking about the pipeline. His son is fed up with his dad's cruelty. You know, he's kind of thinking for himself. He storms out. He says he's going somewhere where he can do the most good, which is 
apparently Alaska. He's going to Alaska. Do good in Alaska. He's like, I'm not working for your oil pipeline, putting it through the Eskimo village. I'm going to Alaska to do good things, not oil pipeline related things. Good things. Yeah, he's either it, a, con a wannabe conservationist or a humanitarian because it seems that he knows what's coming and he wants to prevent that from happening. And it kind of works, doesn't it, Misty? I mean, his dad does say after that that he did not, in fact, then go into, you know, financing that pipeline just because of his son. And But he disappeared, obviously. So I'll let you yeah. get on with it. <laughs> Excuse yeah. Okay. Yeah, the interruption. No, totally... Yeah, no, it's good. Um... Okay, so it is revealed that after the sun arrives in Alaska, he's lost in an avalanche and yeah. pre presumed dead. So it's pretty much right after he gets there, he's lost in an avalanche. His dad thinks he's dead. He searches high and low. He spares no expense looking for his son, but he's never found. And like you said, he was so affected by the loss of his son that he even decided not to help finance the pipeline after all. Yeah, so, ben. yeah, sorry, oh. sorry, I just wanted okay. to say in a weird kind of way, his son's sort of rebellion proved effective, you know, it's like, um, you know, um, even though it, it messed the dad up and drove him insane, which we'll see in the panels where he's like holding his head <laughs> and having these sweats. <laughs> he is a sweaty guy, that's what that yeah, is. All the time. <laughs> Very sweaty, yeah. <laughs> Gross. Sorry, again, I've interrupted you. Excuse no, me. No, it's good. Um, so, uh, back to present day. Quentin Grady is obsessing over this tape that Jenkins fetched for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he sees it as a sign that his son is still alive. And then he orders Jenkins to book him on the next flight to Alaska. He's going to go find his son because he's convinced he's alive now. He's seen that he's seen his face on this totem pole. So Quentin Grady shows up with a private militia. <laughs> yeah, band of mercenaries. <laughs> like full on private militia mercenaries. Armed to the a, teeth. Yep. Uh, at a remote village in northern Alaska. And he confronts the people living there. Apparently, his son's death didn't change him too much because he tells his militia, don't hurt them yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen soon. Just keep yourselves entertained until then. Mm -hmm. Oh, damn. <laughs> so he did have like a, a small change of heart when he decided not to put the oil pipeline to the village, but he is not beyond murdering these people to find out <laughs> what happened to his son <laughs> oh. so Quentin sees the totem pole and he flies into a rage which he immediately takes out on an Eskimo woman with quite literally red skin <laughs> yeah mm. uh, mm -hmm. we could talk a little about that later um, so he grabs this woman and he demands answers He's just completely unhinged, and he threatens to blow her brains out. <laughs> so he's just, he's just lost it. <laughs> the village shaman tells him the face is of someone named Grady, but the shaman won't tell him where he is. So 
this isn't good enough for Quentin. Quentin orders his militia to destroy the village. And they do. They Until take, they... Yeah. Basically, they yeah, hack it down with axes and they ram open doors with battering rams that they've quickly whipped up and they burn it down because there's some smoke. Right, Misty? I don't know what they do, but they obviously yeah. some atrocities being committed here. Yeah. Uh, All of these guys have, like... Is it a bandolero with a, the... Sh the, yeah, like, with ammunition. With all the bullets and yeah. the ammunition. There's axes. There's is something on fire. There's there's just wreaking madness and wreaking havoc on this poor village. Yeah, of you, just you native can... indigenous people to Africa. You know, or sorry, to, to Alaska. Yeah, they've, you've even got this one guy in the midst of the carnage. This one mercenary, or it might even be Grady himself, saying, "Now this is more like it." Jeez. Yeah! What? That's a militia guy's psych. He's psyched. That's what he showed up for that day. He's like, I showed up to uh, beat indigenous people and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> oh my god, they live reference. I love it. That's that guy, yeah. John Carpenter would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so, Grady then walks out of the smoke the sun we see the sun the smoke parts he's walking through the smoke uh he tells his dad stop this he says stop this um he says that he loves his father but he can never leave the village and that the father should just leave just go away so instead of leaving Quentin is ready to just go berserk on the totem pole because he thinks the totem pole is what is ensnaring his son to this village and making him stay. So he goes to chop the totem pole down. And while he's chopping the totem pole down, his militia is attacked by a werewolf. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, it turns out the werewolf is his son, Grady, who is the protector of the village. And now that Quentin has chopped down the totem pole, his son no longer has control over his werewolf powers. So he's like raging out at the dad, like, I can't control my werewolf powers anymore. Like, and the uh, father is forced to kill him with an axe. Yeah. So that's not a good day when you have to, you finally find your son in a village and it turns out He's a werewolf, and you reunite for a second, but then he turns back into a werewolf and kills your whole militia, and then he tries to kill you. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have to kill him with an axe. It's not a good day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, it's, it's horrible because just as he, well, basically he takes this axe to his son's face, yeah. and then his son is lying dying, and then he's you know Quentin's racked with grief he's saying oh my god Les forgive me forgive me and then Les says no father you forgive me that means there's worse coming for the dad <laughs> which is <laughs> oh yeah it's great. Um, and you are correct about that uh, his dad begs his son for forgiveness as the son dies um, and it is revealed that now the dad has to take the son's place as the protector of the village. So the dad is now a <laughs> werewolf and destined to protect the village as a werewolf beast. 
Yeah. Until somebody kills him and becomes the new protector. That's right. And they've got a brand new mm -hmm. totem pole that they set up in the middle of the village with the dad's face right at the top, right above his son's. Okay, I'd admit, this is a pretty great ending. You know, um, mm -hmm. I like this story a lot, but there were some few things, you know, that I have a gripe with, but we'll get to them. First off, uh, Misty, this was a pretty uh, well-drawn issue, I'd say, one of the better ones out there. I love the way that the werewolf was penciled, and I like the, the way they rendered the totem poles, but like you say, the the way they portrayed the Native Americans or the Native Alaskans, that was a little bit too stereotypical. Um, oh, well, I just thought blood it red skin. <laughs> with, you know, because the, the color processing in comic books. Yeah. Um, my mom was a graphic designer for a lot of years. Really? And it, she was doing it before people used computers to do stuff. So... I used to see mock-ups that she would do for some of her print projects where she would have to create a magenta layer, create a cyan layer, create a yellow layer, um, and then build colors through using different layers of the color, essentially. Wow. Yeah, the color process. So, yeah, so I think about the color process they used in comics and, you know, what their options were as far as, like, flesh tones go. Yeah, they. I guess back then they didn't have a lot, so... Right, like Elvira, she's pure white. She yeah. just, like has not even a speck of color in her skin. Maybe it, there's some yellow or purple or blue, depending on what the ambient or atmospheric light is. Mm. But yeah, in this story, the skin of the indigenous people is it is one color, one process red. It's just yeah. just red, you know. Yeah. So. I just think they could have, um, they could have, you know, just by their clothing alone, could have, you know, conveyed the fact that they're native Alaskan. They don't, they didn't have to go full on, you know. Oh, th there's a reason they're called redskins, which is a, you know, racial, racially charged term. And I mean, you've met Native Americans. I've met some in my life, and they're not redskinned at all. You know, no. it's just, uh, it's just, you know. So well, but back then I thought it was. Well, I think they saw it as less offensive but um right now in context we know that it is in fact you know a staple of comics way back when to have these stereotypical portrayals but you know we're reading it in a time bubble right uh, misty so we can we can yeah. let it slide but we definitely have to comment on the fact that this might be offensive to you know um any native american people reading this comic might think you know what yeah, like people who are indigenous to northern parts of Alaska might not see themselves represented very well here. Uh, and like just the, the facial features of, of like the woman that he grabs, she has very European facial features. She just has red skin, you know, so like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it is. It's it is what it is. <laughs> something there's there's. I don't want to say worse offenses. I'm not trying to compare things, but you see it in other horror comics with other cultures. And yeah, like you were saying, just stereotype things get stereotyped. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that more listeners in the future, because in fact, this is not the last comic where we'll find that since mostly you and I are going to be discussing old horror comics. We'll get to that, but that's not the main reason. You know, obviously we have a love for these stories, but we're also going to point out these cultural no-nos and, um, you know, 
uh, faux pas that they committed back then just because they had, well, they were probably ignorant of the fact that that's not okay and how that made people feel, you know, um, minorities feel at the yeah. time. But, you know, that being said, it is a very good horror tale. And um, there are definitely things I liked about it. Um, and I think we should talk about those because, um, well, this is one of, you, you said you really like the story, right, Misty? Yeah, I thought the story was a lot of fun. It had some fun characters, especially Quentin Grady. He was, a, to me, a pretty fun character. Yeah, he's like a, a bad guy that you don't... I mean, he's, he's in the role of a villain that you see often, but the way he reacts, he he does, you know, um, love his son more than his business, as it turns out, because he, in fact, let, allowed some part of his business to fail in his search for his son. And he he, yeah. he does hold the, maybe the legacy of his name or family higher than, you know, the than his the money he gets from his endeavor. So he's a different kind of yeah. villain. He does this all for family. He does. He goes broke looking for his son, um, spends the last of his fortune on a <laughs> militia. <Yes. laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's he's a complex character. You, you would you might say you might say oh yeah definitely i mean <laughs> yeah. um, and he's constantly you know sweaty and he's constantly looking like um he's <laughs> the, the situation's fraught with danger even though he's sitting on his sofa and he screams at his butler get me the tape get me the tape of this this, this. yeah he's an intense guy he's an Very. intense guy yeah so uh, yeah he's outrageous Definitely not a villain we, we see often. I mean, his personality shines through in just a few panels already. So kudos to the writer, but also, you know, the character of Grady sort of compels, I think, the writer to, to you know, just, just flow into his character. And just, I, I would love writing this guy, for instance. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you He's know, an artist of some kind. Yeah. And think about it, the way this story plays out, he doesn't, in fact, get the typical um, death or, or the horrific death that you find bad guys in, in horror comics getting. He, in fact, becomes the monster rather than being slain by the monster. So um, we'll talk more about that, but that, that's what I liked about this story. The ending sort of surprised me, like most of these um, endings do, you know, they, they, you know, they turn the situation on its head. They subvert your expectations. This one did that for me in spades. What about you, Misty? Yeah, definitely. With the introduction of the reason why the sun is the werewolf oh, that yeah. we kind of just learn at, at the very end. And then so, so does the the father he learns that as well <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah learns that um, the hard way it's definitely a twist i think it's really great how he is so protective of his son and then he ends up being the protector of this village um yeah. and the... i think it's all it's honestly a little bit better retribution wise because now he has to protect these people who he was just terrorizing yeah you're right you're right. i didn't think about that he hated these people he saw them as the reason for his son's disappearance and he even blamed them for the fact that his son refused to leave with him he like yeah. he said at one point in time the, sh the, the, the shaman or the, the medicine man has got him under a spell <laughs> so yeah uh, yeah but... he, he's like a he's a bigoted guy he, he shows up and he's 
he doesn't he makes judgments just right right oh, yeah. out of the game <laughs> uh, exactly and so yeah it's i think it's a really fitting end for him that he's now tasked with protecting these people yeah no i agree and you know um i like the fact that the the theme in this comic has been sort of um synchronized the theme you know uh, uh, of the prodigal son if you think about it uh, okay the first comic book with uh, death for rent you know the guy lost his son he sort of came back as a ghost oh and then yeah in this one it's the same you know except he goes to find his son you know yeah so it's sort of like the prodigal son kind of theme in fact now that i think about it misty all these elvira issues from issue one to issue 11 kind of had a running theme i mean the one we discussed earlier the theme could be considered to be supernatural retribution or you know um back karma you know karma catching up with you something like that mm -hmm. but here it's definitely about you know a family member a, a prodigal son and um, yeah that makes the hor horror more intense at the end because he regains something he wanted back grady you know the, the the dad and then he loses it and then he becomes you know the thing he despises as uh, because of the act of, of losing his son, which actually he had to, I mean, think about it. He had to kill his own son with an ax to the face. Yeah, he did. And I'm... there's this really great panel of him when he's doing it too. And the oh. sound that it makes. <laughs> oh, that sound effect is amazing. What is it like? Shitwalk. <laughs> Shitwalk. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, now, do you want to gush more about this issue? Because I do have a, a few gripes, and um, I know you're going to disagree with me, but um, oh, can, can I um... get to them? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if there's anything else I would like to say about this particular story. Um, I thought that the artist did a really good job of setting the scene and like saying a lot about the character by just what clothing he was wearing and the golden objects on the table. I might have already mentioned that, though. I, I, the artist did a great job here. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh. Joe Mantusinio, he um, did show up every now and then doing short horror tales for the anthology format. And, um, you know, we probably penciled a few full-length issues of other comics, but I don't re recall him becoming a big name, which is a shame. Because he's definitely got this 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 style down, you know, of a horror comic artist. He did a great job. Yeah, I like the way the whole comic's laid out. Like in the beginning, on the first page, when you have the the dad scrolling through the TV channels, and mm -hmm, you have like mm -hmm. click click click, um, and every story is sort of you know it sort of makes you feel like oh this is setting the stage for you know multiple tales, and then he gets to the story, which is completely implausible by the way. He sees a story. <laughs> of an Indian tribe, and he spots the totem pole on the TV of, and the, yeah. the, the image on the totem pole looks like his son. Now, think about it. Any sane person would think, "Oh, this is just you know a carved image resembling my son. I'm seeing what I want to see, right?" Right. But he's yeah. not going that route. He's like, "Oh, I gotta get to that village. This is him. This is this is explains where my son's gone." <laughs> yeah. He there's like this panel i think where he's obsessing over it he's sitting in a dark room yeah. he's smoking a pipe sitting in a dark room and just watching the tape of the totem pole exactly. that jenkins i'm just watching it over and over again just obsessing that's right 
Now, now let me to get back to the. Okay, I know I'm supposed to be talking about what I hated about the comic, but I'm still on what I loved. <laughs> strange reason. Okay, go ahead. What did you not like? Oh, wait, wait, wait! I just want to mention something I really did like when he's clicking through the channels. You know, did you see what happened? He saw the uh, story of the um, Alaskan village and he saw the totem poles. Then he clicked and he went to another um, channel, which showed a scene from I presume. Lon Chaney Jr.'s The Wolfman, the old Universal movie, where Lon Chaney is with a girl and he's saying, even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers at night, maybe, oh. and the, the rest of that, the rest of that line is, maybe come a wolf when the wolf's bane <gasps> blooms and the moon is full and bright. So that sort of provides a, a kind of a framework for, for in which direction this, this story is going to go. It's going to be a werewolf oh tale. Gosh, but you wouldn't even know that unless you like were, you know, that's inside baseball. That's deep. Yeah, that's well, like if you're a un horror knowledge. universal <laughs> movie fan, you know, but uh, okay, this scene, I can't remember the scene from the movie. It never actually happened. I mean, the person who said that to him was a gypsy witch, you know, who said that to Lon Chaney Jr. When, you oh. know, before he became the Wolfman. So, but, but uh, this story is definitely inspired by the Wolfman because... At the end of the movie, uh, the Universal movie, he gets beaten to death uh, by his father with a cane, with a silver, you know, uh, top, uh, with a, you know, with a silver uh, handle. So okay. this this follows the same route, except this is an axe to the face, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, Swak. <laughs> wow, you do it better than I did. Thank you. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so it sort of follows that, you know, theme. And, you know, at first I was thinking, okay, this is going to be a werewolf tale. But then I saw, okay, they're they're in an, in Alaska, an Indian tribe, and there's a totem pole. It's not going to go that route. And then the werewolf does show up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw this coming. But then the werewolf does not have any of the traditional werewolf, you know, lycanthropistic, <laughs> if, you can, if I can create a new word, weaknesses or or attributes okay there is a full moon and that's presumably w when he turns into the werewolf to to, to kill these uh, militia members of his dad's and he does th so spectacularly i mean he claws a guy's face off he picks up another guy you know above his head and presumably hurls him to his death or breaks his back he rips out another guy's throat basically he went through this militia you know like a laser beam through butter, right? So yeah. then he leaves this carnage behind him and heads towards his dad, who's now killed the medicine man. He's killed the, the chief or the shaman. So ruthless. He probably yeah. didn't even need to do that. He, but he just, just blows him away. like. Yeah, or no, no. He, he I think he chops him with an axe. It looks like he's shooting him. Uh, but But look at the panel just behind, just before he kills him. He's got an oh, axe. Yeah. He's brandishing the same axe that he's going to use to kill his son. And then yep, right after he, he hits him in the chest, the axe is dripping blood as he's standing, you know, in front of the moon. <laughs> Very small panel, not lots of detail, but it's so striking. And then he starts to, you know, chop down the totem pole. That's yeah. when his son shows up. Shows up strangely. He seems to be obviously be able to control the transformation. But now that the totem pole's down, he's losing control. But he changed back into his human form. Just he before changed that. back just for like that one conversation. 
Yeah. You know, the to fun... tell his dad that he didn't have control anymore. Exactly. Like, I yeah. have control just to tell you that I don't have control. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you kind of get the the feeling that he he wanted to kill the militia members, so he sort of because he can definitely control the transformation when the totem yeah. pulls up. So he did that, but for his dad, he wanted to appeal to his dad. He didn't want to kill his dad, so he changed back into his human form to reason with him. But then it was too late because the totem pole had been chopped down. He started to become a werewolf again. And there's this great panel on the next page, uh, Misty, where he sort of like has his the sun has his head in his hands and his eyes are becoming supernaturally blood red and he's becoming a werewolf again and, yeah oh man then he quickly in two panels of while he's undergoing the change he tells the story of how he became the werewolf he defended someone from a, a wolf attack and then the wolf that he killed just by clubbing him to death turned out to be the protector of the village the, the previous <laughs> protector the, well, the person on the totem pole and um, clubbing him to death, which is what happened in the Universal movie, you know, um, The Wolfman. And I find that, that bit great. So now, now I'm torn here, Misty, because the more I talk about this issue, the more I'm getting to like it. Damn it. <laughs> I, I don't have anything bad to say about it now. What, what, what's that bit about that? Wolfman makes it pretty good. I mean, that's pretty good to have the, what do they call those things, eggs? Yeah, egg Easter, eggs, Easter eggs. Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> eggshells. <laughs> no, walking on eggshells is when you're trying to tiptoe around a sensitive topic, like how they represent the Native Americans here. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely eggshells yeah. in this. No. Yes. Uh, uh, Easter eggs. <laughs> Easter eggs. <laughs> cool. No, no, I agree with you. There's lots of Easter eggs. Um, uh, definitely the the writer. You know, uh, Stan Timmons being a fan of the old Universal movies. and Okay, now the only gripe then I do have is the title seems... Okay, this story seems to have been generated from the title alone. And then, you know, he sort of filled in the rest of the 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 meat or the, you know, the skeleton of the story by, you know, his love of the Universal films and whatnot. But if you think about it, Low Man on the Totem Pole, it, it literally means someone in a, in a lower... Uh, rung on the status ladder or you know in a lower position in a company or a job and <clears throat> in both cases nobody's low on this totem pole literally both are pretty high up <laughs> because the most yeah. recent protector is always at the top of the totem pole so the title it was just picked <laughs> to get a title to 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 mesh with this this alaskan you know um native american tribe right so, but yeah. but it doesn't make sense when you look at the actual story. Nobody's really a low man on this totem pole. If you think, if you know what I mean, right, Misty? The the the, the guys at the top of his, you know, um, company. He's he's the, the the owner. He's a he's a billionaire or whatever. And the son is his, you know, his uh, heir. So yeah. I can't see the title yeah. having any significance other than the fact that the writer wanted to use the word totem pole and the only way you could do that is to use a phrase or mm -hmm. a figure of speech that people know which right doesn't, doesn't make there's sense there's not many any of those that have totem pole in them so yeah so he had limited to options. yeah he had to kind of use that i mean if i had to use if i wrote a story called a horror tale called low man on the totem pole it will be about a lowly worker being screwed by his boss and then trying to get revenge or something like that but, by turning to a werewolf. 
Oh, that would be <laughs> definitely a part of it. And, um, you know, I'm glad he did put the werewolf in it. That's probably the reason I, I love the story now. <laughs> I've quickly changed my mind on it. But <laughs> but that's the only gripe then I have. The, the second gripe I had is how easily the werewolf is taken out by the sun in the flashback. You know, by just clubbing the werewolf to death. Oh, yeah. He just knocks him out like a, go a good golf swing. Yeah. <laughs> And that's how yeah. the werewolf dies. No silver needs to be used. I mean, an axe to a face, I can understand that that can take out a werewolf, especially this yeah. in Indian-style werewolf, where, which silver doesn't figure into this werewolf's weakness at all. But, you know, the fact that he literally just smacks this werewolf, and we've seen that this kind of creature can take out an entire band of militia. So you want to have me believe that this kid who happened upon this wolf attack just swats the wolf once and then he's dead? He probably yeah. clubbed him, you know, a couple of times that we don't see off panel, but that still doesn't make sense. <laughs> so <laughs> when he's the story to his dad too, he tells him that he nearly died. He said, "I nearly died," which oh, is yeah. like, okay, 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 buddy, you didn't nearly die. Like you, you hit the wolf a couple times with with the bat. The, the bat. <laughs> It died. <laughs> You're fine. Okay. Could... His, hat, his hat didn't even come off. He's still wearing his hat. Yeah. Didn't even knock his own hat off. And so. in the panel where he's standing over the werewolf's body, he looks completely fine. I mean... Fine. So, a little disheveled. Mm, but, yeah. you know... <laughs> Unless that, that red scarf he's wearing is intended to be blood gushing out from a neck wound. <laughs> Which it's not. But, no. yeah. So, no. Um, I, I've... I've gotten a complete 180 on this story and I've started to just think that this might be one of my favorite tales. Wow, this is going to have to change my my elevator rating, Misty. <laughs> awesome. All right. So let's get to that. Like what what would you give this out of 5? How many elevators does this story warrant? How many elevators? Does this whole issue in fact warrant taking into account the first tale? You know, um, death for rent and the slow man on the totem pole together. The I say four point five. Oh damn! Okay, that's very close to my rating. Well done. We're simpatico here. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a four. Four out of five. Okay. okay. Do you want to know my previous score? Two. Yeah. <laughs> two two point five. Oh no! Oh my gosh! I don't know myself. I'm telling you, I'm I'm vacillating between. Uh, what am I? Am I uh, bipolar here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No. No, but uh, I really. With, with upon learning the werewolf news, I think that really knocked it up a bit. Yeah, I I mean I guess it's something I put in my notes, but I I was gonna say this is not original this is derivative of a great universal movie actually it's totally different and it enhanced the tale you're right so as i was talking about it with you <laughs> i fell in love with it <laughs> well that's great that's so wonderful yeah, no. that's uh the opposite of a elevator yeah you're right i mean it doesn't take you to hell it takes you to better places <laughs> where you can a appreciate ladder to, a ladder to horror comic heaven yeah you're right oh damn that is my idea of heaven just sitting and reading horror comics all day. That would be great. And drinking coffee. Um, the occasional alcohol here and there too. So, oh, it would be... That truly would be nirvana. So, 
But I'm glad we, 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 we're very close on our ratings on both of these issues, Misty, so not too far off. This, these two issues have been great. I, like I said earlier in the, in the show, I loved reading it. It was like a part of my week last week and the week before that when I was just having so much fun, even during this pandemic. I was like, there, there are good things in the world still. So, yeah. Yeah, there are. Um, I, I also gave it, I want to say I, wanna, I gave it a higher score because uh, there were two female main characters yeah. in Death for Rent, which is really exciting just to see a couple of antiques dealers, business partners, That's right, renting yeah. a Renting a house together in the country, you know, I thought that was pretty cool, pretty progressive. Yeah, there's not a lot of that in these old horror tales. So, um, you yep. know, every time a strong woman shows up, you know, with, with with some agency to her, it's it's definitely something that needs to be noted, and I enjoyed that too. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the, you know, the final girl concept. I mean, even way before the term was coined, right? Misty, final girl. I loved old horror comics where there's a, a female protagonist and she survives or she doesn't survive, but she she gave it her best shot. You know what I mean? I don't just like this helpless victim all the time. And surprisingly, yeah. there's lots of stories with, with women like that in the old horror comics. But, but the ones that we're going to be discussing hopefully would have more of that. Um, so we'll we'll find them for you, listeners. <laughs> and if they're not those stories, then we'll talk about why they're not those stories. Yeah, exactly. We'll criticize yeah. these old farts for you know, especially Robert Kennegar, you bastard. No <laughs> war mongering, <laughs> sob. Like, <laughs> like in Death for Rent, she was punished because she didn't listen to her friend when she saw a ghost. So as long as it's like just violence you know <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah nothing we're, uh, no no we're, the comic code was still firmly in place in this case so we won't have more than just that but um when we get to the easy stuff though misty then there's yeah gonna be that's some gonna be fun time truly, a lot of dead wives. <laughs> truly reprehensible things happening to women in those comics but we're not relishing in them we're gonna we're gonna critique them but yeah that's a big big uh we'll do both yeah, we'll do both. Yeah, yeah. Our, our enjoyment does not in any way, listeners, stem from the fact that horrible things happen to women or to anybody for that fact. It ha it's because it's fantasy and it's because it's it's imaginary, it's fiction, and that's how we get our kicks. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, we run the, the the terror exactly, and we're gonna like normal people. Yeah, precisely. That's how everybody should be if they're not like that, at least. And hopefully yes. this podcast will convince them. Yeah. <laughs> Just have a, have a laugh. Exactly. The, the darkness. Yeah. Laugh in the darkness. That's right. The <laughs> echoes are heard throughout the long box of our laughter as these horrible people get their just desserts <laughs> on the pages of the comics, not real life people. <laughs> so, you know. Also, one last thing I want to say. Um. Elvira has to share the spotlight with Kane in this comic and mm. in quite a few of the other ones he, he stops in um, I so I would like if she had her own comic which she does <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say Cut no 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 <laughs> back no no don't let's keep it because I I agree with you back then I, I would have liked this comic to have been more successful to continue past the 11 issue mark and to 
to yeah. have gone into, you know, um, I don't know, at least the 30s or the 40s of, or, or even, uh, um, you know, sustained a, a larger following. I mean, judging by the letter pages, they had a lot of folks who loved this comic. Uh, not a lot of uh, criticism. In fact, there were quite a few folks who wrote in. I don't know if you had a look at the letter pages, Misty, but there were lots of folks writing in saying that this is better than the old House of Mystery. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think, I think they were trying to maybe bring it back. And, and they're like, well, we have Elvira to put some fuel to this fire. Mm. But let's also get Kane in here because he's this classic character. And if we don't put him in here, then people will miss him, you know, yeah. and he, he as a character misses being there. Um, but then me as a reader, I'm just like, I just want Elvira. I'm just here for Elvira. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no you, offense, Kane. <laughs> yeah. You see, I think they should have completely, you put all their, just thrown out all their old toys and just come up with, uh, they should have just have owned it and said, okay, this is going to be Elvira's house of mystery from now on. And, um, Kane could sometimes show up as a guest host, but he could then, uh, you know, offhandedly mention, no, I've got other things on my plate. I, I know the house is in good hands. You know, I'm handing it over to you. Yeah, like I would have loved that. Once in a while, but so far in these two comics, Kane is trying to, like, stage a mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not working because Elvira is <laughs> just turning him into the butt of her jokes. <laughs> yeah, Kane. she's making fun of <laughs> I mean, she even at the end of issue 10, I think it is, she even introduces, you know, to, to just mess with Kane. She said he, he offers to be her co-host and she mm -hmm. says, oh, I've already got someone to fill that position. And she opens the door and it's Abel, his his yeah. hated brother. I mean, I love Abel, but Kane despises Abel. He hates he him. So, yeah, well, you know, from the biblical able too. But, I mean, just in, in all the old House of Mystery comics and even in the Swamp Thing comic that, that, that you know, started in 80, 83, 84, uh, Cain keeps murdering Abel, you know, over and over <laughs> again in these um, House of Mystery and House of Secret crossovers. And then, you know, so he hates him. But now Elvira's saying, okay, hey, my new sidekick and... Also, the person taking over your house is the previous owner of the House of Secrets, your hated brother Abel. Take that, Kane. So. And it, she, he's not even her partner; he's her assistant. <laughs> oh yeah, she will never have a co-host. <laughs> so I, I should amend that. Right, she would not share the spotlight. And this is her saying that, yeah, Kane, I'm kicking you to the curb. You'll never be on my level, which is kind of true. I mean, Alvarez crossed, you know. Um, media she's not just in comics <laughs> so mm -hmm. she's she's horror celebrity Kane's like a horror There's, hack nobody's gonna buy Coors Light with a cardboard cutout of Kane in a bikini <laughs> oh nice yeah except somebody really twisted <laughs> with a twisted sexual fantasies yeah no I agree so, well, now that you say it, now I want to see that, and I would buy a course light if I saw that. I would definitely <laughs> love that. Kane in a sexy pose. Oh, man. Displaying yeah. not cleavage, but hopefully nothing else. I Kane don't goes, know. That was my first introduction to Elvira was, I remember walking into a grocery store and walking past the place the, the, where they sold the beer, and her cardboard cutout was was there and it was right around Halloween time. And so that was my first, my first introduction to Elvira was 
she, you know, in her mm. plunging dress and holding up a six pack or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, insert myself into your narrative here. But I think if I was a, you know, a boy, uh, you know, let's say, for instance, we walked in that store together, we would have totally different reactions to that <laughs> cutout. I would have and, like instantly love at first sight. That that's how. Oh it would yeah, be. yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was love, but for me, I was like fascinated because I'm just like, ooh, spooky lady. Uh, yeah. Um, and but don't quote me on that. That that is, listeners. It might not have been. It might not have been Coors Light. She could have been selling like uh, Lacroix or something. Yeah, some other type of. Beer. I just I... remember like this cardboard cutout of her in the grocery store, and it was selling something. Maybe it was chips. It could have been something. Pepsi. That's probably Pepsi because, like, I think about her and the types of merchandising that she does, and I'm not sure she would be promoting alcohol. You know, like at that point in her career, so. Yeah. I don't know. It could be. It could have been for something else, but it was definitely a cardboard cutout. Yeah, I probably would be not <laughs> more knowledgeable on this if if she actually made it as far as South Africa, but she didn't. <laughs> I mean, other than the comic book that I picked up there when I was a kid, uh, she wasn't a big deal in South Africa, which is a shame, you know. Um, but definitely in the states and in Europe, you know, she was apparently a big deal in Europe too. I mean, she's still a big deal now all across the world. I'm talking 80s here, listeners. You know, she was a big deal in, in mostly the states in Europe at this point in time. But I would have, my point is, I would have loved it if I had more of Elvira in my life as a kid. You know, I would have just as loved to have her movie macabre uh, show, you know, where she introduces horror films, old classic horror films. I would have loved that as a kid. How cool. How cool oh, would that man, be to that's... live in Los Angeles when she was first starting out? Oh. And watching watching late night ba uh, bad monster movies and having <laughs> some of them were genuine classics. I mean, but you know, obviously yeah. now, but you know, back then, yeah, they were B movies, and you know, so I would have yeah, that that was even my jam back then. I would have loved that. I mean, so I had to make do with you know just the the crypt keeper for the TV show Tales from the Crypt that's the one we did actually get in South Africa you know but but we didn't have any other horror hosts that we knew of on film and TV um but you know in the comic books yeah horror hosts for me was a comic book thing whereas in fact it was more of a radio show TV show and then a comic book thing uh, originally from the 40s and the 50s um but you know um Elvira's the quintessential horror host so um, I gotta agree with that. Same as you, I think, Misty. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know Wait. anything about Sven Gulli. I know he's a big deal, but how could he compare to someone as glorious as Elvira? She's she's A tier. She's class one horror host. She's up there with the best of them. That's right. And she's just a beloved character and... I'm very thankful for her existence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, typically um, she inspires people and she sort of inspired you with your, you know, Misty Graves horror host persona, right? Which is the actual you, I should tell the listeners. Um, you know, Elvira yeah, Stephanie. Actually, Misty Graves. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> dead. I'm an actual dead person. <laughs> Vampire slash, you know, Valley Girl slash, you know, TV personality slash. 
beer advertising. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Pepsi. Let's say Pepsi. Yeah, no, I mean, um, that brings it to, you know, the fact that, you know, most people like Elvira's because of the humor. So you, in fact, now that you're the the producer of the show, Misty, you've got a segment that you, you're going to preview, which will show up regularly in our subsequent shows, which um, is all about humor. So would you like to introduce that to our listeners? Yes. What is it called again? What are we calling this? It's called... Misty's Funny Bone. <laughs> That's right, listeners. Get ready to hear some jokes. <laughs> Horror related, obviously. I'm ready. I mean, I we've you haven't told me what you're going to be saying, so I'm coming into this completely fresh, just as you are, listener. So let's let's um, perk up our ears, and I'm I'm excited. Get ready to hear some jokes. So one of my favorite thing things about horror comics is that there's a sense of humor in them. There's often really terrible puns. Um, and the writers have a sense of humor when it comes to the punishments that they inflict upon their characters sometimes. So, you know, I, th- I think it's nice at the end of discussing all of these horrible things that have been happening to just end with some jokes. You know, clear the palate a little bit, do some light funnies. <laughs> I like it. I love it. And um, okay. yeah, let's, let's go for it. All right. So we'll start out with some horror jokes. And then I have a couple Wild West jokes in honor of our uh, comic, second comic today. Yeah. Okay. So first joke. What is a ghost's favorite play? Oh, what is a ghost's favorite play? Oof. It's not... Romeo and Juliet. Oh, classic. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have known that. I was going to say something Shakespeare, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go that route. We're almost there. Almost there. Next joke. What do vegetarian zombies eat? Mm. Oh, tough one. Vegetarian. There are no vegetarians. No, there are. Oh, damn. I don't know. <laughs> Regale me with the knowledge. Grains. <laughs> grains. Grains. Oh, man. Classic. Damn. Um, And now we move on to Wild West jokes. Mm. Nice. I'm going to get some of them, I swear. I'm going to try my best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are pretty easy ones, so you you should be getting them. Um, all right, so Wild West joke number one: a three-legged dog walks into a saloon in the Wild West. The barman asks him what he wants. The dog replies, "I'm looking for the man who shot my paw." <laughs> <laughs> oh no, not my paw! <laughs> Oh, I Gary, because he's got three legs. Yeah, and he's looking for the person who shot off his paw. But Paul yeah. being a play on dad, <laughs> the mm-hmm. way they talk back then. Oh, brilliant. No, <laughs> Misty, I wouldn't have gotten that one because, come on, I'm not from the States. I don't talk That's, like that. Yeah. I wouldn't have got that one either. <laughs> that would be good. I think there's probably some listeners out there who've heard that one before. <laughs> no, never. No, I, I'm not one of them. So, yeah, I, I got what I needed out of this one. <laughs> Excellent. 
That might be the best. That might be the best joke. Do you want to end it on that one, or do you want one more joke? Oh, let's go for one more. Come on. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Um. Let's see here. All right. So a uh, guy sees a guy tying up his horse in front of the saloon, and calls, "Hey, are you folks gonna hang someone?" The guy nods, and he says, "Yep, we're a fixin' to hang Brown Paper Larry." The cowboy's brow furrows. He says, how come he's called Brown Paper Larry? <laughs> well, says the guy, the man always wears clothes made of brown paper. Brown paper shirts, brown paper pants, even brown paper socks. The cowboy ponders this for a moment, then asks, well, what are you hanging him for? Rustling. <laughs> Oh man, I can't do a wrestling sound effect. <laughs> wrestling. Oh, brilliant. Okay, I did catch that one. Oh yeah, good. You've got some paper nearby. This be nice. Oh, I don't even think I have that sound effect on my, you know, stingers here. But oh, brilliant. <laughs> hey, that's my favorite one. I, I like it even more than the, the paw one. <laughs> I oh. think wrestling. I'm not sure what that was, but that was definitely a crime in the Wild West. Yeah, well, that's when you, you know, steal, um, you know, uh, cows or horses from another guy's herd. Or, uh, you know, you're like like, like the, 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 the folks in the Young Guns movies, you know, Billy the Kid and his ilk. You know, they used to, like, go the rust rustling. Yeah, I think. The rustling cows well, and horses. Yeah, rustling cows and horses, just stealing them from, from under the... The noses of who, or mostly, well, in most cases, killing the guys who are supposed to be, you know, hurting them, and then just yeah. taking them. So yeah, well, that works for me. I like that joke. I'm gonna go for that one as my favorite. <laughs> Thanks, Misty. We all need some laughter during this time, and I'm glad you you sort of it's medicinal, really, at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're they're kind of corny. They're kind of bad, but that's the kind of humor we got in these parts here <laughs> I, I dug it I loved it so Misty yeah, we're gonna, definitely going to have this segment recurring again and again listeners because you know horror and humor they work well together and I'm, I've decided a more lighthearted tone is what the long box of darkness needs and Misty's bringing that <laughs> so, today I am oh okay yeah there might be days where we're like oh okay let's, let's discuss a comic about a yeah. flesh eating virus ravaging the world and oh oh wait a minute this is not a comic this is our life but <laughs> <laughs> right we will be doing i don't know what we'll be doing in the next episode but maybe we'll hopefully nothing sad we'll no, try not to make it but we'll i mean like, even though it's a, something a little bit of gore a little bit of axe murder you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah killing your son killing your family members which we did today yeah. we'll, we'll take a bit, a bit of a humorous spin on it as well you know no matter you know about the content but we'll pick something topical uh misty it might be something related to events that are happening i don't know we'll we'll uh we won't uh, spoil anything yet but i'll i'll do that in our next prelude episode where i'll sort of spoil what we're going to be talking about but the, but that's still going to be in two weeks time listeners for now uh, we're going to end the show by giving you some of our contact details so um, first, I'll do the Long Box of Darkness, Misty, and then I'm going to let you promote yourself a little bit. Um, 
if the listeners want, we mentioned this earlier in the show, you can reach us at www.longboxofdarkness.com. That's our website. And I'll be posting some show notes there as well as some images from the comics under discussion. And then you can also send any feedback to darklongbox at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at darklongbox. And you can also check out my other show, uh, Into the Weird. Um, and that's at Into Weird on Twitter as well. And then how about you, Misty? Where can they find you on Twitter and where can they find you online? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Misty G Comics. And that's about it for now. Um, I don't have anything else. <laughs> oh, so um, the, sh the, the she music uh, that you're doing at the moment, is that going to be on a hiatus for a while? That's <laughs> like... You know, I've been producing music as she since like 2012 and it's, I did like five albums and I've just been working on the same five songs for like the past five years. <laughs> so, I, I, I don't know. It's not really something that I'm actively promoting, like promoting or trying to make anything happen with it. It's just kind of like, I don't, I don't know. No, well, that's okay. I mean, whenever that resurfaces, you know, I'd like to. You know, um, obviously, I from what I've listened to, I've I've liked, and I'm not even much for you know electronic music, but you've got some good tunes. Oh, so, thanks. Yeah, but that might also just me projecting what I want <laughs> my co-host to be <laughs> like onto the music. But um, uh, you know, uh, then I do have to mention something else though, uh, Misty related. Um, I want to challenge the listeners to send in questions. If there's anything you want to know about our newest uh, horror host, about you, Misty, I'm challenging the listeners to send in some questions to us that they will, you know, that I will read out and put to you, and then you can answer them live on the show next time we we get around to recording, and then you know they'll get to know you a bit better. If they're impatient, if they don't want to listen to the next ten odd episodes where we'll slowly get to know. You know all your likes and and predilections and stuff, but yeah, let okay. them ask you some questions, and then um, you can. Yeah. You know, anything specific? Let write in, write in. Let him know. <laughs> I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. We've been recording nonstop. This is going to be like a three-hour episode, listeners, which is actually not that strange because the previous you know long box of darkness episode i did was like four and a half hours so <laughs> the listeners are used to some to stuff like this but um okay we'll leave you with that and um we hope that uh in two weeks time you'll tune in again and join us for yet another look inside oh. the long box of darkness <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry i was gonna ask if listeners to send us jokes Oh, yeah, we need that. I mean, I'm going to leave this all in as is. I'm not going to edit this out because this is podcast serious? verite. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So, yeah, well, let's do that. Send us some horror jokes. I would like to hear your funny horror jokes. Please keep them, you know, PG-13 at the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll screen them, of course. But, you know, um, yeah, send them in. And um, we'll definitely uh, mention you, you know, if we use your joke on the show and um, give you a shout out. So please do that, listeners. It'll be great. That's our new thing. <laughs> yeah, giving shout outs. Oh, yeah. Like I've never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I just plagiarize willy nilly. So <laughs> but... got to give credit where credit is due. That's right. 
So, you know, with that, listeners, we bid you farewell. Um, Stay safe out there. Best of uh, luck during this pandemic and ride it out like a true final girl or like a true horror movie survivor. I'm sure we'll be fine. And uh, listen to the long box of darkness in your, you know, time in quarantine. And hopefully we'll be able to entertain you for a little while. But we'll be back, right, Misty? So, yeah, Uh, look for us again in a couple weeks' time. But with that, that's bye for me. Good evening. And pleasant screams, <laughs> or should we say unpleasant dreams? Up to you, Misty. Which one are you going for? Unpleasant screams, ghouls and <laughs> guys and ghouls. <laughs> Brilliant. Take it easy, folks. Bye-bye. Thank you.